quiet, please. Mutual Broadcasting System presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called The Thing on the Furble Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago, a little too old, too slow now. Besides, I got a dollar now, I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. Married, got a nice home, had to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she doesn't hear very well. Shame, too, she's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. A roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a guy in a drilling crew. Call them roughnecks like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer, a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. A derrick floor or a forble board is no place for a guy with a bow tie. Because, you know, when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level... Yeah, sure they do. By the time I was a roughneck, we'd got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Trona Valley in Wyoming at 14,309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, that, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men, maybe, that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes the little shells, trilobites mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunwald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. We were down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing. We began to get water, so we hadn't stopped drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe. Then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing, and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with quick-hardening waterproof cement. Then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and cracked. The cement was setting, see? So we was shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. You see, a, a core drill is hollow, and as the bit digs down, it stuffs the drillings up inside it, so when you pull it out, you got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's gone into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the forge for myself, but I heard a car pulling up. Look out, it's Billy Grunwald, the geologist, and I give him a hello. 
Hi, Billy. Come and have a pork chop. Hi, Porky. Uh, where's everybody? They all went to town. I'm the whole crew. Yeah, I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. Yeah, I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd be in here about three. Yeah, I would have been, except for my tough luck. <sighs> oh, I'm dead. Yeah, hungry? Starved. Yeah, I got six, oh, seven pork chops. Well, bread. Then some coffee, kind of. Swell. Yeah, I got a bottle in the car. If <laughs> we're going to have a banquet. Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Yeah, back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh-huh. I thought I heard somebody talking. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody. Keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Yeah, let me put the coffee on. Soap. When did you finish cementing? This morning. Last tower only made about ten feet of hole, so Ted shut down before we get flooded out of house and home. Funny about that water. How? Oughtn't to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure, right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm, that's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. The last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. Ain't seen none yet. From the cuttings. That's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Yeah, take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Oh, man. Good, huh? <laughs> yeah, put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, I'm much obliged. Yeah, you know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata. And all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yeah. I'd like to go down there sometime if I was little enough. <laughs> Never get you down a hole. Yeah, you'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? Behind you. Over there. Hmm? Oh. Well, I'll have a look at it. Well, why don't you wait till you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Uh, put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Well, I wish those screech owls would keep... What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well, what? It... Listen. What's eating you? You, you know, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there in that portable board. Ah, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. Getting against those stands of drill pipes. Ah, they're just rack crooked. One of them slipped. Come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I. Ah, what's you so jittery about, Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that way, I guess. I'm always scared of the dark. I'm scared. Gonna, I, I hate to be a baby, but I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest? Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over here? Yeah. yeah. Here. Ah. Oh. That's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky. Go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket and bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. Okay, kid. Okay. So I picked up a flashlight. I turned around and went outside. I found the car. Then I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up, and 
when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the forbo board, and I laughed. <laughs> Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there, except the drill pipe racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this, uh, forbo board. Well, you've seen oil derricks, or pictures of them. Do you know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forbo board. You see, drill pipe comes in lengths, and you handle them with several lengths screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two lengths is a double, three is a thribble, four is a forble. When you pull a pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick of the traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. Then when a forble of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, like a great big stilts and wrench, you see. Snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. Then you hold the tongs on the pipe, give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. The guy up on the forbo board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again till you got all the pipe out, you see? Well, there wasn't anybody up on the forbo board uh, except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Yay! What's the matter? What's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My... Where did you find that? Now, listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the core. Why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. And look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed, just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. Wait a minute. Hang on. I ain't done. I poked at the core of rock that looked like a uh, kind of petrified salami or something. And then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants. Because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up. And it was cold. And it was heavy. And... It was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger. And as he rubbed it, it began to disappear. No, he could he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk, and we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we've done? When we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me, we finished it in one slug of peace and it was a full pint of bathtub gin. It tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. 
The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming up from down the forbal board 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow, spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. Things I could hear but I couldn't see up on the forbal board. Billy Grunewald climbing up the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me, and I couldn't figure out who they were. Then I was waked up by a horrible scream. The crash alongside me that shook the whole derrick. I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away. With a broken neck. With a broken neck... And his left hand, well, he put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand, and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car, and I got in. I stepped on the starter, and I couldn't get it to go, and then I remembered after I'm pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken a key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car and shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop and everybody in the world was asking me questions. Did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pike, Ted. Well, what was he doing up on the foreboard board? Did you threaten him, and did he run up there to get away from Listen, you? Listen, cop, don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and I were good friends. Then why'd you push him off the forbal board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I don't know. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides, how would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer. I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky, and personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, so. it's mighty mysterious. Well, so it is. But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there. I want to start drilling again, and I'm short-handed. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again, and... Well, then you can take him and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, I... Okay. Let's get rolling. They got steam up, Happy? I'm all set. All right. Porky, you go from the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there to shove you overboard. Now you can put a safety line around you if you want to. And besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Come on, get going. So, okay, I go up on the forbal board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. Now I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. Came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first forbola drill pipe. Gave a big jerk and the cable broke. It dropped and nearly pulled me off the forbola board. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself.
was enough. Two accidents in a row. The whole crew quit. They, they wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more, and... As far as I know, the abandoned Derek is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. And you know what? There was something up there on the forble board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I, I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands like a skeleton off on a deserted side road in the bare yellow hills surrounding it, and it's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we'd left it. I, I looked in at the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. Then I heard a tinkle of something as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunewald and I had found in a core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. And I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. And there wasn't any kid up there. And I heard it again, and it came from above my head, and, and I and I took out my revolver. And I loaded it carefully. And I started up the ladder to the forble board. No, there wasn't anything up there, nothing I could see. There was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. And then there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out, or I'll start shooting! And the stand of pipe shivered, and I thought, what can it be that can handle that heavy pipe like, like Jack Straws? And then there was a crash. The whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time. And I was alone on the forbo board with the thing. But I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or three shots. And nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it meowing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. And there it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror. Hands like a human being and a finger missing from the left hand. And a body. I'll not tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth, come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well. 
come to an alien world and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint, blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. Its hand was stone, living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and mewed like a lost kitten. Twenty years ago, I discovered many things about it, what it used for food, that it was deaf, that it was invisible and couldn't see people when it was invisible, that if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face, I can't help wanting to see that pathetic Little girl face. I'm afraid maybe I've fallen. Ah, but it's very beautiful. And when it's well made up, it's... But making it up, rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet. I can disguise the body in long dresses. She can't hear very well. And when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no, sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike. Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. The title of tonight's Quiet Please story is The Thing on the Furble Board. It was written and directed by Willis Cooper and featured Ernest Chappell. And Dan Sutter played Billy Grunwald. Pat O'Malley was Ted. And Cecil Roy was also a member of the cast. As usual, music for Quiet Please is played by Albert Berman. Sound? Sound by our good friend, Albert April. Now, for the word about next week, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Well, I'm reasonably sure that all the characters in tonight's stories were completely fictional. At least I, for one, hope so. Next week, the story is called Presto Changeo, I'm sure. And so, until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. This program was heard in Canada through the facilities of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Mummers in the little theater of the air.
you're next. Gas? Couldn't be, Charles. Denon filled up at the last stop. What is it, Denon? For heaven's sake, Nan, how do I know? Well, that's that. Ooh, I hope we don't get stranded in this forsaken territory. Well, that'd be something, wouldn't it? We haven't passed a house in the last three hours. Well, I might as well get out and see what I can do. You want me to take a look at it, Denton? No. I'll tinker with it a while. You and Nan sit down on the side of the road. I might be able to find the trouble for you, Dan. Charles was only trying to help, Denton. Never mind, I say. I have a thing going in a moment. Do as I say. Sit along the road. I'm going to work. Come on, Charles. Let's do as he says. Just as you say, Denton. Here's a nice place to sit, Charles. We can look right down into a valley from here. Why, it is nice, isn't it? See? You can look all over the valley. I wonder what they call this place. I wouldn't know. Oh, look. We're not so far from civilization as I thought. A town at the lower end of the valley. Yes. Now, that's still a long way away. You see? The road takes a roundabout way along the rim of the valley. Uh-huh. Say, uh, I bet that's where I'm going to work. Do you think so? I'll just bet you that's where the job is that Denton got for me. Way out? Away from everything? Oh, I don't know. Looks like a nice little town. I'll make out all right. I hate to have you leaving us, Charles. I'll be terribly lonesome. Oh, I'll get back to the city occasionally. You must be sure to do that. Sure I will. Man. Denton can't hear us talking from here, can he? No. I have a feeling that he managed this job for me way out here because he didn't want me living with you two anymore. Oh, no, Charles. Why should he object to my own brother living with us? You've got me there. I can't figure it out. When I first came to stay with you, Denton talked of getting me work close by. I know he did. Man, there's something strange about it. I don't know exactly what you mean, Charles. Yes, you do. Ever since Denton came back from that road trip, he's acted strange. Now that you mention it, I think I have noticed something different about Denton. He was jolly and friendly enough to me when I first arrived. 
And now, all of a sudden, he's changed. Maybe we're imagining it all. Doesn't seem that he'd be jealous of his wife's own brother, does it? No. Denton's not like that. But he has been for the last ten days. Morose, sullen, sitting most of the time staring at me. Maybe he feels I've been paying more attention to you than to him. Maybe that's it. It's only natural that I'd be solicitous of my own brother, whom I haven't seen for so many years. Uh, we won't talk about it anymore. All I hope is that he isn't ill, that you aren't going to have trouble with me so far away. You said we mustn't worry about it. We won't. No. I do wish he'd get the car started. He wouldn't let me help him. Fairly pushed me away. Denon's frightfully independent. But I wish he'd hurry. Nervous? I think we're going to have a storm. We should be getting out of these hills and down into town quickly. Say, the sky is getting black and gloomy. Look over to the west. The clouds are piling up fast. Something of a wind coming up, too. Denton just stands there looking at the car as if he didn't know what he was doing. Maybe he doesn't. Well, let's go back over. Maybe you'll let me help him now. All right. Watch your step. There are jagged pieces of rock here. That wind's getting stronger every minute. It sure is. Looks like we might be getting a tornado. How are you making out, Denton? What? Located the trouble? We should hurry, Denton. There's a terrific storm coming up fast. Can't make the car go if it doesn't want to. Look at the sky, Denton. We're in for a real storm. Wow. There goes my hat. No use chasing it now. Please, hurry. Get the car started. All right. All right, get inside. Maybe it'll go now. Let's hurry. I'm like mad to get out of these hills and into the village before the storm breaks. I know these roads. I'll get you out all right. Denton, don't be so cross. Jump on every word Charles says. Then don't give me orders. Thunder. Denton, Denton, we can't drive on, is it? No, I know we can't. What are we going to do, Dan? Can we sit in the car and be safe? We aren't going to sit here. We're going to make for shelter. But where? There's a house sitting up there on the rock. It's so dark, I can't see it. There's a house up there. I got caught in a storm the last time I was through here. Climbed up to that house and stayed until it blew over. Can we get up there all right? We can make it. We'll have to. Get out of the car. We've got to start right away. Hurry. Climb out. Give me your hand, Dad. It's in the middle of the afternoon and black as night. Oh, we've got to climb fast. We'll all take hold of hands and start up the rock. We've got to get to that house. We've got to get there. Give me your hand, Nan. Let's go. Hurry. Come on.
we're here. Are you all right, Nan? All right. Knock on the door, Dan. We don't have to knock. We walk right in. What? Hurry. Get inside. What a relief. I I thought for a few minutes we might not make it. I'll bolt this door so the wind won't rip it open. Who owns this place? Doesn't anyone live here? There was no one living in it when I stopped on my way through here last time. But it must belong to someone. It's completely furnished. Whoever owns it hasn't been here for a long time, then. Everything's covered with dust and cobwebs. I can see them even in this pale light. It's so dark in here. Can't you find a lamp or something, Denton? I'll get a light. There's one in this room off the hall. Come on, Charles. Let's follow him. I don't like standing in this dark hall. I found a lamp. I'll have it lighted in a moment. Oh, it's so damp and cold in here. Ooh. Light makes it better, doesn't it? Some. Maybe. I don't like the looks of this place. At least we're out of the storm, Nan. You stopped here on your last trip through, Denton? And there was no one living here then? That's what I said, wasn't it? But it's completely furnished. Surely someone lives here now. Maybe they do. They aren't here now. Almost like a dungeon in the room. Windows are built so high. Something like a fort. But it's Grand Denton knew of this place. It shells her out of the storm. The wind couldn't blow this building over. Denton. What? What are you staring at? What? You heard what I said. What are you staring out into the hall for? Say, Dan. Are you all right? Don't clench your hands that way. What do you see? Did I say I saw anything? What's the matter with you? Don't keep asking me questions. I've got you out of the storm. Isn't that enough? Now leave me alone. Where are you going? Where are you going, Denton? Stop him, Charles. Don't you think we all have a sit in here? When the storm blows over, we can drive on. What's wrong with him? He's moving like a person in a trance. Get him to come back in this room. Are you ill, Denton? Is there something we can do? Stay right where you are. Both of you. What is it? I'm going into that... that room across the hall. But why... why don't we all stay together? It's dark in here. I don't like it. I want you to stay near me. I said I'm going into that room across the hall. And I'm going alone. Your brother Charles will take care of you. You prefer his company, don't you? Is that what's wrong with you? Why do you act this way toward my brother? You might as well make up your minds. Both of you. That we'll stay in this house until morning. I'm going into this room to sleep. Denton! It's no use. Is it He's got it in for me. Come on. Let's go back where the lamp is. Listen. 
you hear what he's doing? Barricading the door. What does all this mean? Oh, Charles. Let's get back to where the lamp is. It's as if he's lost his mind. Sit down. It's been coming on him for some time. Ever since he made that last trip through here. We know that. What shall we do? Why did he go into that room and leave us? As soon as we get into town, we'll persuade him to see a doctor. Let's make the best of it now. If he wants to leave us and sleep, let him. Oh. It's tough on you, Nan. I'm sorry I brought you all this trouble. Dennon's never been this way before. There's something dreadfully wrong. <laughs> What was that? Oh, is that Denton laughing? No, it can't be. He's never laughed like that in his life. Oh, it's coming from the room Denton went into. That's for sure. He's going mad. Oh, Charles. Come on. He'll have to let us in. Denton? Denton, what is it? Let us in. Dan, let us in. Locked? Bolted and barricaded. Denton, please let us in. <laughs> it is coming from in there. But it's not Denton. It can't be. Oh, what are we going to do? What shall we do? <laughs> Everything's all right now, Nan. He's quieted down. He answered you the last time you went over to the room? Yes. He said, I'm all right. Go away. Oh. I think he's going to sleep now. We might as well do the same. I can't sleep in this horrible house. Yes, you can. It'll only be a few hours before morning. But what if Denton refuses to come out of that room in the morning? He'll be better in the morning. The storm's passed over, too. Everything will seem different in the morning. Leave the lamp burning. I'm scared. Sure. I'll set it on the mantel. It won't bother our eyes, but it will shed some light. Yes. That will be all right. You think Danton will sleep? I think he's asleep now. I'd break the door down, then if I thought it would do any good. But I think it's best to let him get over this spell by himself. I'll never believe it was he laughing. Who could it have been but Danton? Oh, now, don't worry anymore. Try to get some sleep. If he calls out, I'll wake you up. Seems like a nightmare, doesn't it? It will in the morning. Everything will be different then. Go to sleep now. You need the rest.
I'm going to get him out of that room before something really happens. You mustn't go near him. I've got to. No, you stay here. Never. I'm going with you. I'm going to make him let me in there. He may try to kill you again. I don't think he will. You stay behind me. Denton? Denton! Denton! The door's unlocked. Denton? Stay back, man. I'm going to light a match. Great heaven. Denton. What is it? Get back. Don't look. Why are you closing the door? What is it, Charles? What did you see? No. Denton's... Something's happened to him. Something's happened to Denton. What is it, Charles? Tell me quick. What is it? Denton's... Hanged himself. Keep hold of yourself, Nan. We've got to get out of here. Down into town and get the authorities here. Denton. Denton, save yourself. Let's hope the car runs. We've got to get into town. <laughs> the laughter again. Look. Look. Up at the top of the stairs. What, what is it? In the faint light, it... It looks like the figure of a man. Yes, but you can see right through him. He's <laughs> disappeared. Standing there at the head of the stairs, pointing at us, then vanished. That 
same laughter. Charles, you're not going out there. We're going to get out of this place right away and get help. Quick, hurry, we must get help. Well, I tell you, it's urgent. You've got to go up there right now. Go up to that house on Lost Man's Bluff before daybreak? Right now. Oh, no, not me. But my husband is dead in that house. Would never enter the door of that house at night. No, sir. Neither would anyone else in this town. Denton is dead. He ain't the first one to die up there. What do you mean? He never heard of the house on Lost Man's Bluff? No. We don't live around here. Oh, well, that explains that. What did you mean when you said that Denton was not the first man to die there? Five years ago, fellow that owned that house killed his brother. Then hanged himself. What? That's right. But hanging didn't seem to take him out of this world. Now, I ain't the only one that's been there, passed there at night and heard his wild laughter. Uh, it's fit to make the hair stand right up on a man's spine. Uh, other folks tried to live in that house. But you know what happens to them when they go in a certain room in that house? The room Denton tried to sleep in? The desire to kill enters in them. And the laughter of him that belongs to the other world drives them mad. They can't get away from it. They return to the place. Charles, that's what happened to Denton. He said he'd been in that house before. They try to kill. If there's anyone near to kill, and then they take their own lives. It's happened to three other people. One man got back to town and told his experience. But he went back up there a few weeks later and took his life, hanged himself. Oh, no, sir. You'll have to wait till morning. Won't get nobody to go up there in the night to that house on Lost Man's Bluff. on Lost Man's Bluff continues to pierce the night. Don't ever go near it after sundown. Now, turn on your lights. Turn them on. <laughs> I'll be back. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> Characters, places, and occurrences mentioned in the Hermit's Cave are fictitious, and similarity to persons, places, or occurrences is purely accidental. and its 60,000 dealers and service stations present Suspense. Tonight, Autolite brings you Mr. Ralph Edwards in Ghost Hunt, a suspense play produced and directed by Anton M. Leader. Music. 
Friends, replace worn-out narrow-gap spark plugs with a set of those new wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs. Your motor will idle smoother, give better performance on leaner gas mixtures, actually save gas. These winning benefits are all made possible by a newly developed Autolite 10,000-ohm resistor built right into every Autolite resistor spark plug, making practical a wider spark gap setting. And that's what does the trick. What's more, Autolite resistor spark plugs with this exclusive Autolite resistor have greatly increased electrode life and cut down on radio and television interference. So, folks, see your Autolite dealer and have him replace old, worn-out, narrow-gap spark plugs with a set of the new Autolite resistor spark plugs. Remember, you're always right with Autolite. And also remember, the Autolite suspense show is now on television. Every Tuesday night in many parts of the country. And now, Autolite presents Ralph Edwards in a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Didn't that leave you high, huh? Left me feeling treetop tall. That was Louis Armstrong's I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And that's all we have time for on the hot and mellow hour tonight. Yes, 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 this is Smiley Smith, your favorite disc jockey. I hope a hope booting the hot and mellow hour home for this evening. I'll be back again tomorrow night, minus the music, but with a little surprise for you. Tomorrow night, Friday night, as you know, is stunt night here at Station WXP. And have I got a stunt for you. Last week, if you remember, I planted my wire recorder in the steam room at a lady's Turkish bath and then let you listen in on the playback, remember? <laughs> well, tonight, as soon as I leave the studio, do you know where I'm going? Hmm? Your friend Smiley is going to spend the night in a haunted house on a spook hunt. You heard me, a spook hunt in a haunted house. I'm bringing my little old wire recorder along with me, and if you tune in tomorrow evening at this time, you'll learn what it's like to spend a night in a haunted house. Ain't that something? <laughs> a real haunted house. No kidding. Four people are known to have committed suicide there. So tune in tomorrow night and share a real thrill with your old pal Smiley, I must be crazy, Smith. Good night. <laughs> Here for a cigar, Mr. Thorpe? I got some cigars in the dash there. No. Well, no reason for you to carry a chip on your shoulder, Mr. Thorpe. Oh, really? Well, I don't like this fool stunt. Well, I don't see it as a fool stunt at all. I really don't. I think it's the only way you're going to unload this house. Ordinary selling methods won't work in a case like this. Now, don't forget the reputation saddling this house for suicide since 1939. You know what people call it, the death trap. Yes, a lot of nonsense. Sure, but try to convince people of that. Anyway, when this disc jockey offered me this chance to kill all the rumors about the death trap, about the property, I just naturally jumped and took him up at it. Especially since it don't cost a cent. You sure about that? I'm not liable for a penny. Not a cent. We're doing him a favor letting him use the place, he said. Thanked me for the chance last night when I drove him out here. So one hand washes the other, as the feller says. He got a chance to pull off a stunt, and the wire recording will prove the people the property is A number one, and we increase the chance of selling the place. Well, as long as it doesn't cost me anything. Not a thing. He's using his own recorder, and I'm paying for the rental of a couple of walkie-talkies he hooked up to it. Well, uh, what about this, uh, Reed? Does he charge anything? He comes gratis, too. 
Dr. Reed is a, uh, whatchamacallit, a psychic investigator. Belongs to a couple of societies that do nothing but hunt ghosts. <laughs> he showed me articles he's written about it in a magazine. Uh-huh. Well, here's the house. Yeah, looks real nice in the sunshine, don't it? Yeah, man, smell that sea breeze. You don't have to sell me. Well, let them know we're here. <laughs> Probably asleep up all night and everything. Why don't they come out? You think they've gone? Well, I told them last night I'd pick them up around 11. Uh, Smith! Smith! Hey, Smiley! Dr. Reed! Yeah, fast asleep, I guess. We better go in and wake him up. Of course, they may have taken the bus back to town. No, no, no. It's a two-mile hike to the main highway. Uh, Smith! Hey, uh, Smiley. Where are you? Wake up. You don't suppose, uh, do you? Oh, no, no. Uh, Smith? Uh, Dr. Reed? What's that, that, uh, clicking noise from in there? Well, it's his wire recorder. He left it running. <laughs> These machines cost a lot of money. Doesn't he care if he uses up his batteries? Well, where is he? And where's this Reed? Maybe they're upstairs. Uh, Smith? Hey. Anybody home? They must have walked to the highway and taken the bus. Well, he wouldn't have left his machine. Well, where are they, then? Where are they? Now, now, don't get excited, Mr. Thorpe. Don't tell me not to get excited. If something's happened to them in my house, I'm liable. You try this side. I'll try that. All right. Uh, Smith. Hey, Smiley. Smith. Smith. Oh. McDonald. Come here. Uh, What? What is... Oh. No. Reed. Dr. Reed. No, no, don't touch him, Mr. Thorpe. You'll get your hands off. Look. Blood. Is he dead? I can still feel his pulse. We better get him to hospital fast. Mr. Thorpe? No, no, thanks. Well, why not try to relax? The nurse said Reed would be all right as soon as he's had a blood transfusion. You told the radio station to be sure and call us as soon as they had any word about Smith? Yes, I told them. Uh, why don't you sit down? No, I'm all at sixes and sevens. What do you suppose happened out there last night? Well, we're going to know in just a second, just as soon as I can get this, this recorder set up. You don't suppose Smith and Reed got into a fight, do you? Yeah, there. Huh? A fight? I don't know. Well, what's wrong? Won't it work? Yeah, it works. Uh, take it easy. One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. There. Testing. Listen. One, two, three. All set, Dr. Reed? Mr. McDonald? Hey? Okay, here we go. <clears throat> this is Smiley Smith speaking. Smiley Smith, the ghost hunter. 
I don't know whether to hope this will turn out to be a success for the sake of the program or a failure for my own sake. Anyway, all the preparations have been made now, and it's up to the spooks. I better tell you where we are. Right now, we're standing on the lawn of a house about 12 miles above Malibu Beach. The ocean is 100 feet away, straight down. The house is perched on a cliff, and there's a sheer drop of about 100 feet right into the old Pacific. Maybe you can hear the surf pounding. I'll turn up the volume. Hear it? Now, I'm going to have you meet two gentlemen who are here with me. Incidentally, we're the only people around for miles and miles. First, I'd like you to meet Dr. Clarence Reed of the British and American Psychical Research Guild. Dr. Reed is a famous investigator of uh, psychic phenomena, and I'm very honored to be associated with him on this ghost hunt. He's smiling in an embarrassed sort of way. You're much too kind, Mrs. Smith. Dr. Reed has conducted experiments in this field with such great believers in spiritualism as Oliver Lodge and Arthur Conan Doyle. He looks a bit like Santa Claus. He's short and stocky. You don't object, do you, Dr. Reed? Hmm? <laughs> no, 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 indeed. And he has a magnificent white beard, a truly great beaver. Dr. Reed is so enthusiastic about ghost hunting that he got out of a sick bed this evening to be with us. <laughs> Excuse me. My lungs. Mm-hmm. I was uh, gassed in the First World War. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Dr. Reed and I are here on the lawn looking at the house. Can't see much. It's around, oh, 11 p.m. now. Seems to be a rambling sort of house, two stories high. Since it was built, there have been four suicides here. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Now, in, into the mic. Please. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> four suicides since 1939. I better tell them who you are so they won't think you're a ghost. Huh? Standing with the doc and me is a real estate agent, Mr. Charles McDonald. He handles this property, and he can tell you a lot more about it than I can. Well, the house was built by a man named Marcus. Toby Marcus, an orange grower. Built the house as a wedding present for his wife. Month after they moved in, she took her own life. On the day of her funeral, he committed suicide the same way. There have been two other cases since then, and I... Did they all uh, jump into the ocean? Yeah, yeah, all four of them, right over there. The last one was actually seen doing it. About three years ago. He was seen running like all get out the edge of the cliff, and he was shouting and laughing and yelling as though there was people at his side running right along with him. You kidding? That's a fact. He was laughing and yelling and running, and when he got to the edge, uh, right over there, he jumped and never came above water. <laughs> as good an argument against cold baths as ever I've heard. <laughs> uh, since then, people just refuse to live in this house. Silly, I call it. Anyway, if you and Dr. Reed find any sign of a spook, I'll advise the owner to pull the house down and rebuild. But if you don't find anything, I'm hoping this will convince folks that here's a real buy. Yeah, okay, Mr. Smith, you and the doctor are on your own. I'll be by in the morning to pick you up around 11. Goodbye, Mr. McDonald. I hope there's something left for you to pick up in the morning. (laughs) Well, it's almost pitch black, folks, and I guess Dr. Reed and I ought to begin. I don't believe in ghosts, never have, but what I say is this. If you're dead set on looking for them, this is a dandy place to do it. So long! Mr. McDonald just checked out. And then there were two. Well, three. Oh, my dog, yeah. Uh, folks, I have my dog, Jeff, with me. He's a wire-haired terrier, three years of age, and he can talk. Yeah, say hello, Jeff. Come on, Jeff, say hello. Come on. Well, anyway, he's a wire-haired terrier, and he's three years old. Uh, shall we go inside now, Dr. Reed? I was about to suggest it. Now, uh, how do we hunt ghosts, Doctor? How do we do it, huh? Well, we don't really hunt. If there should be any in the house, they will come to us. How cozy. And please, not ghosts. Do not refer to them as ghosts. We know them as apparitions. Now, remember, I've no desire to hurt their feelings. Where ghosts are concerned, I say live and let live. (laughs) 
Well, we've opened the front door now. Maybe you heard the hinge squeak a little. Now we're standing here looking in. Can't see much. Smells sort of musty and damp. What's the matter, Jeff? What's the matter, boy? Jeff. Oh, come on now. Come on. My dog seems to object to entering this house. He has all four feet braced and he's straining against the leash. Perhaps he senses something we don't. Like apparitions, maybe? Perhaps. It's not unusual. Animals lack the veneer of sophistication we humans possess and are more sensitive to such ammunition. Yeah, come on, Jeff. Now, stop this nonsense. He probably smells a mouse or rat or something. Come on, Jeff. We're going in whether you like it or not. There's a short entrance hall, and over there at the end of it is a flight of stairs leading to the second floor. Jeff! And uh, over here at the left is what seems to be a large reception room. We're entering this large room now. There are windows over there, French windows, and through them I can see the ocean. The electricity hasn't been turned on, so all I have to see by is a flashlight. Not a very powerful one at that. Dr. Reed is now adjusting his walkie-talkie. It's hooked up to my recorder so that he can cut in while he's hunting and tell us what he's found. Here's a few words from Doc before he sets forth on his investigation through the house. Ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Mr. Smith has introduced me as a ghost hunter. He spoke, I think, in a spirit of skepticism and, and levity. I'd like to assure you all that my purposes here are serious. I have spent my entire life seeking reliable proof of the appearances of apparitions. Mm. Have you ever seen any, ever? I have seen phenomena which lead me to believe in the possibility of their existence, although I have never seen any. I account myself sensitive to the evidence of their existence. This house, for example, affects me profoundly. It doesn't seem to affect you in the same way. I'm not too happy about all this, if that's what you mean. You are not psychic and therefore not sensitive to these matters as I am. I imagine the question in the minds of those of you listening to us is... Shall we find apparitions? I don't know. But I feel they are here and that they are evil. I sense danger. I shall soon know. Dr. Reed's leaving the room now to make a tour of the house. First thing I'm going to do is open the windows and let some fresh air in. Ah, feels better already. Cooler anyway. I know that. Oh! Oh, a bat, a, ba a bat just flew flew into the room. I, I think it's a bat, not a bird. I didn't actually see it, just its, its shadow as it fanned my face. There it is again. It touched me as it passed. Oh, oh, oh. Jeff, 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 come back here. Jeff, you fool dog, come back here. Dr. Reed? Dr. Reed? Dr. Reed? <laughs> Suspense. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Ralph Edwards in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Hey, hello. Hello, snap out of it. Huh? Oh, oh, uh, I'm reading a letter about the new wide gap Autolite resistor spark plug, huh? Oh? It's from Mrs. Clark Perry right here in Hollywood. She says, our 1948 station wagon has given constant trouble. Finally, the garage man said all the difficulty was spark plugs, and he installed a set of Autolite resistor spark plugs. Now the car runs beautifully. The very first time my husband has been really pleased. Well, smart garage man. Smart people to take his advice. Hap, you know, as more and more people learn about wide gap Autolite resistor spark plugs, 
And how they make an engine idle smoother, give better performance on leaner gas mixtures, actually save on gas, why then more people will replace old, worn-out, narrow-gap spark plugs with sensational new wide-gap Autolite resistor spark plugs. Any more letters like that, Harlow? Plenty, Hap, plenty. Why, here's another one from New York City. Oh, uh, read it to me later, Harlow. We haven't time because here's suspense. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Ralph Edwards as Smiley Smith in Ghost Hunt. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. Oh, oh, oh. Jeff, Jeff, come back here. Jeff, you fool dog, come back here. Dr. Reed. Dr. Reed. Dr. Reed. Reed speaking. What is it, Smith? Uh, Jeff has run off. My dog, he, he jumped through the window and ran off. Oh, so? I told you he sent something about this house, didn't I? Yeah, you want to come and see if you can determine what it was exactly that set him off? Uh, soon. I'm making my way slowly up the stairs toward the second floor now. I'm halfway up. I'll be down with you soon. <laughs> Folks, my dog's run away. You probably heard him howling. He jumped through the window and took off. Never did anything like that before. Frightened by the bat, I guess. Personally, alone here in this big room, I can understand how he must have felt. This isn't a cheerful spot by any means. I may not be psychic, but I sure have a feeling this house doesn't want us here. Read again. <coughs> Excuse me. I have something of great interest to report. I'm now standing in an alcove on the second floor trying to recover my breath. As I reached the head of the stairs, I felt what I think is a definite psychic manifestation. I felt suddenly as though I had been punched in the solar plexus. That's the only way I can describe it. At the same time, I began to perspire. My head is still swimming slightly, and I have difficulty in swallowing. My pulse rate is around 110 in a minute. The sense of evil is very strong. I feel very, what shall I say, profoundly depressed. Do you want me up there? Uh, no. I prefer to remain up here alone. The presence of a disbeliever such as you might interfere with my investigation. Folks, I'd like you to get a picture of what it's like here. It's very quiet, for one thing. I've never been in such a quiet place. And it's pretty dark. No light except my flashlight. Tell you what... You go now and douse all the lights you have on. Go ahead, put out the lights, and that'll give you a clearer feeling of how it is here with me. Go ahead, put out the lights. Hey, did, did you hear that? <laughs> Real estate agent told me I'd probably hear rats and mice in the walls. I can certainly hear them now. Even you can hear them, I think. It's as though... Dr. Reed speaking. I've been working my way toward the front room, the one directly above the one in which Mr. Smith is now. The vibrations have become stronger more and more pronounced as I approach it. I think I am on the verge of an important discovery. Important discovery. Did you get that? Now I can hear Dr. Reed moving about in the room above. I don't suppose you can. Have a try anyway, huh? Hear him? I hope he finishes his investigation soon because, quite frankly, I'd like to get out of here. I can well imagine people becoming unhinged in this place. Right now I find myself pretty jumpy. Not being very brave, am I? It's being alone in this room down here that does it. This, this darned old house, it's, it's a very, I mean, you know, the atmosphere, it's so very... I wish only to make this hurried report before continuing with the investigation in this room. I have carefully sounded out all the parts in this room, and the emanations are most strong from what appears to be a closet, before which I am now standing. As soon as I open the door to this closet, I will have, I think, a thing of great interest to communicate. 
I find no key to the lock, and so I will attempt to remove the hinges with my penknife. And I will tell you what I find when I open it. I'll tell you what it would cost to get me to open that door. In the basement at Fort... There's that bat again. It seems to like me the way it keeps... Each time it passes, it touches my face or my neck with its wings. Smelly things, bats. I don't suppose they bathe very often, if at all. I wonder how... Get the way you bat! That bat'll be the death of me. Yeah, it's like a jingle, isn't it? Bat'll be the death of me, the death of me, the death of me. Bat'll be the death of me. It isn't far from London. No, that isn't the way it goes. It's uh, come down to Q um, in lilac time, in lilac time, in lilac time. Come down to Q in lilac time. It isn't far. I haven't thought of that since I was a kid in grammar school. See, I had a lonely childhood when you come right down to it. I mean, oh, that's my affair, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It well, certainly is. I have succeeded in removing the hinges to the door, and I find inside it is not a closet, but much larger. It is, I think, a dressing room. I have not yet been inside, but I am about to enter. Uh, what was I talking about? Uh... Oh, yeah, bats. Well, the bat flying back and forth in this room is... Did you hear that? Did, did you hear it? Dr. Reed must have knocked something over in the dressing room. A chair, a chair, yeah, a heavy chair by the sound of it. The chair, or whatever it was, must have fallen right, right over my head. That's the way it sounded. I, I, I can see a small stain forming right on the ceiling, right right over my head. <gasps> Something ran across my foot just a rat, I think it was. I've always hated rats. Most people do, of course. That stain up there bothers me. It, it's gotten so big so soon. I think I'll take a chance and bother Reed and ask him what it is. Dr. Reed. Reed. Can you hear me? Are you all right? Hello? Well, he... Didn't answer. I, I, I think he's just a little bit deaf. think so. What do you suppose he's found, huh? I'm afraid this is rather dull for you listeners. I, I'm not finding so, of course. There. there I, I heard him cough. Did you hear that cough? Hope he's all right. He, he, he got out of a sick bed to come here this evening, you know. He was gassed in the First World War, and this place is beginning to get on my nerves a wee bit. Just a teensy-weensy bit. <laughs> Speaking, I... Hello? He's switched off. That's the bad cough he's got. I feel so lonely. I've been alone so much in my life. Not so much now, of course, but when I was younger, I was alone so much of the time. You know, struggling to get ahead, living in a hall bedroom, wondering where my next meal is coming from. I get the blues just remembering it. Seem sad, young people having to spend so much time alone. Sad for old people, too, of course. I'm saying, of course, a lot. Of course I am. Hey, that stain on the ceiling, it's grown amazingly. It, it, it's actually beginning to drip. I mean, form bubbles. They'll start dropping soon. Colored bubbles, they seem to be. Odd-shaped stain, like a, a, a body lying on its back with its arms stretched out. <laughs> it's cheerful. <laughs> oh. I'll certainly advise Mr. McDonald to have this place pulled down. I'll go upstairs in a minute or two to see how Dr. Reed's making out. You know, listeners, I, I really believe I'd go completely crazy if I had to stay here much longer. Wears you down. That's exactly what it does. It wears you down. It's so close and musty in here. I feel sort of trapped. Huh. Don't know why I said that. that. That's what they call this place, you know, the death trap. There, what did I tell you? That stain started to drip drops. Drip drops. Drip drops. Drip drops. Drip. I'll catch the next one in my hand. Let's... <laughs> Reed! Dr. Reed! I'm going upstairs now, listeners. I'm, I'm afraid something has happened to Dr. Reed. I'm not kidding. I mean, this is on the level. I, which room could it be now? Right? Le no, right, right. This is it, I think. 
Well, well, evening, gentlemen. And, and madam? I'm so glad to see you. I, I, I was just aching to see somebody. Anybody. I, I've been so lonely down there. Uh, what have you done with the doctor, huh? I know, I know he's been hurt. See the color of the bubble on my hand? What have you done with him? Make way, please, gentlemen. Make way. Well, well this isn't the, the funniest darn thing. <laughs> This can't be Dr. Reed lying here. He didn't have a red beard. Now, don't crowd me, gentlemen. Don't don't crowd me, please. Huh? You want me to go where with you? You want me to do what? Speak up, gentlemen. To the cliffs. Down to the cliffs? You mean right now? <laughs> well, all right, if you'll come with me. I don't want to be alone anymore. You will come with me? All of you? All four of you? You too, ma'am? Oh, good. Come on, then. To the cliffs. To the cliffs. To the cliffs. To the He jumped over the cliff. He jumped over the cliff, MacDonald. He jumped over... Mr. MacDonald, Mr. Thorpe, you may come in to see Dr. Reed now. What? Uh-huh. Dr. Reed is conscious. You may see him now. Is... Is he able to talk? Just for a few minutes. In here. Come in. Come in, gentlemen. How are you, Dr. Reed? We've been waiting to see you. Yes, and I must apologize, gentlemen. I had a most unfortunate accident. Hemorrhage. Hemorrhage? Yes. My lungs, you know. Now, gentlemen... Hemorrhage? Dr. Reed, what happened in that house? What happened to Smith? We've just been listening to a playback of the recordings you made out there. Smith? Isn't he with you? We've just heard the recording, Dr. Reed. Smith jumped over the cliff. Into the ocean. Oh, that poor boy. Dr. Reed, will you please tell us what happened? From what we heard on the recording, there were ghosts in that house. Ghosts? I didn't see any ghosts. But Smith, what about him? If he went over the cliff, it was fear that drove him over. Gentlemen, I didn't see any ghosts. As for that unfortunate young man... Who can say now what he saw or thought he saw? Thank you, Ralph Edwards, for displaying your versatility by appearing as guest star on Suspense. Say, Harold, that Edwards does everything. Uh Uh-oh, half. No, does. Don't use that word on our Autolite show. Oh, come now, Harlow. I can make you use that word, as you call it. How? <laughs> now, don't you say that Autolite resistor spark plugs make your car engine idle smoother? Yes, but... And your car gives better performance on leaner gas mixtures. Saves gas. Sure does. I mean, do. <laughs> I mean, does. <laughs> Aren't we devils? <laughs> Ralph, you tricked me. Well, anyhow, it does my heart good. To tell people that Autolite resistor spark plugs are ignition engineered by Autolite, which makes more than 400 products for cars, trucks, airplanes, and boats in 28 plants from coast to coast. Autolite also makes complete electrical systems for many makes of America's finest cars. Batteries, spark plugs, generators, starting motors, spark plug wire, battery cable, coils, distributors. 
All ignition engineered to fit together perfectly, work together perfectly because they're a perfect team. The lifeline of your car. So, folks, don't accept electrical parts that are supposed to be as good. Remember, you're right with Autolite. And now here again is Ralph Edwards. I want to thank Tony Leader and his great cast of actors for helping to make my appearance on Suspense a very pleasant consequence. <laughs> like all of you, I'm a great Suspense fan. And I'm looking forward to next week when radio's outstanding theater of thrills brings you Joseph Cotton in The Day I Died. Another gripping study in Suspense. Tonight's Suspense play was adapted for radio by Walter Newman from an original story by H.R. Wakefield with music composed by Lucian Morawieck and conducted by Lud Bluskin. The entire production was under the direction of Anton M. Leader. Make it a point to listen next Thursday to Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Remember next Thursday, same time here, Joseph Cotton in The Day I Died. You can buy Autolite resistor spark plugs, Autolite stay-full batteries, Autolite electrical parts at your neighborhood Autolite dealers. Switch to Autolite. Good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Travel, written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Copeland, and starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Lyle Sudrow and Robert Dunway, in Behind the Locked Door. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and kill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as I bring you the strange and chilly stories so many of you have asked to hear again. I call it Behind the Locked Door. Our story begins in the beautiful mountain region of Lake Mead, Arizona. A convertible car is speeding along a deserted road which winds through the mountains. The car slows down, turns into a dirt road. A few minutes later, it comes to a stop before a small mountain lodge. Kathy Evans, an attractive girl in her early 20s, gets out of the car, runs up the steps of the lodge to the front door. She knocks impatiently, looking about anxiously. Professor Stevens? Yes. 
Why did you leave town so suddenly last night? The authorities are looking for you. What? Do they know I'm here? No. How could they? It was intuition that brought me here. They must have found me. Martin, nothing, Nick. Then, you returned from an expedition last night alone, unexpected. You stay in town one hour and then vanish. Not even phoning me. It's best that way. Believe me, Kathy. You've got to tell me everything that's happened. I can't, Kathy. I can't. I'm your fiancé. I've got a right Kathy, to know. Kathy, go away, please. I won't go away until you tell me what's happened. If I do, then will you go? Yes. I... I don't know where to begin. I suppose if you can say it had a beginning, it was that day a little over two weeks ago in Professor Stevens' office. Come in, Martin. Come in. Have a seat. Thank you, Professor. Martin, how would you like to go exploring with me for, say, ten days and two weeks at the outside? Exploring where? The Vermilion Cliffs along the Colorado River. I found some wonderful Aztec pieces there last summer. One large cave I stumbled on proved to be a veritable treasure trove. Yes, yes, I've seen those Aztec pieces in the University Museum. Now, the Vermilion Cliffs still remain largely unexplored. I'm sure that we could turn up many more objects of interest. Well, it certainly sounds intriguing. The only reason I hesitate, Professor, is because of Kathy. Oh, I'm sure she'd give you a two-week leave of absence. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. How many of us would go? Well, it would just be you, myself, and an Indian guide. And three burrows. I find that the fewer there are on an expedition, the better. Mm-hmm. When would we leave? And what about the day after tomorrow? All right, Professor, I'm with you. So these are the Vermilion Cliffs, Professor. Yes. An awe-inspiring sight, I think. Well, they're as breathtaking as the Grand Canyon itself. I had no idea they towered so high. Yes, they make you realize just how insignificant man really is. Yeah. Now, this region is so desolate, Martin, that it's all but unexplored. That's why I'm drawn to a time, time game. Yes, I can understand that. It represents the challenge of the unknown. <laughs> Careful, Martin, you'll get the exploring bug. Oh, I've already been bitten, Professor. Well, if you're going to be an explorer and an archaeologist, I'll have to start teaching you the fundamentals of the profession. Sam, this seems like a good spot. We'll camp here for the night. is hot, Professor. Exploring isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah. All right, Professor, what is it? For 20 minutes now, you've been sitting on that rock staring at that cliff. Yeah. Note the boulders strewn over the face of that cliff. What about them? Well, that's a very peculiar landslide. If you carefully study the formation of it, what's peculiar about it? Many of the rocks look as though they'd been placed there by human hands. But why and by whom? Well, one of the ancient Aztec forms of punishment was to seal a person in a cave by means of a landslide or just piling heavy rocks in front of the mouth of the cave. That landslide, there must be hundreds of tons of rock there. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we're prepared for it. Is that why you brought the dynamite along? Yes. 
Probably all we'll find will be a skeleton. In that case, it'll have been a waste of dynamite. However, we'll chance it. Oh, Sam. What do you want? Get the case of dynamite, Sam. And then blast that landslide. Professor. Better leave it same way it be. Why? Evil spirit sleep in cave. Better not wake him up. <laughs> you really believe that, Martin? I wouldn't laugh. Sam may be uneducated, but he senses things that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean you believe what he said about evil being asleep in that cave? I wouldn't say that I believe it. But nevertheless, I respect Sam's opinion. Sam, I still want to blast that landslide. I get dynamite. Keep your head down, Martin. When I set that dynamite off, there are going to be a great many rocks flying around. Don't worry, Professor. I've got cover. Sam, you ready? Yes, Professor. All right. Here goes. Keep your head down. All right. It's safe now. Professor, I think you did it. I can see a small opening. It looks like a mouth of a cave. Yes, it is. Sam, let me have one of the flashlights. Martin, you take the other. Uh-huh. I'll lead the way in. Just as you say, Professor. It doesn't seem too bad in here. Yes, it's all right. Yeah, what's that noise? This rat scurrying around. Oh. Certainly a huge cavern. Look at that ceiling. Must be 200 feet high. Look at the bats up there. Yes, huge ones. I have a feeling that this cavern and others extend for miles underground. Yeah, I... Professor, look. Skeleton. Yes. There's another one over there. Yes. Let's see what else there is. Wagon train. What? Good Lord. Sam's right. It's a wagon train. A wagon train. Hey. There are at least 30 or 40 wagons in this cavern. Look. Skeletons of horses. Yeah. Here's a skeleton with an arrow beside it. Let me see it. Here's the Navajo arrow. What do you think, Sam? Navajo. Professor, this... This wagon train, what's it all mean? Uh, many years ago, this wagon train was attacked by Indians. Wagon train retreated into this cavern, hoping to save themselves that way. Then the Indians caused a landslide, sealing them in. Yeah. Poor devils. Look. Notice that old gun lying there. Yeah. The flintlock. Seems to suggest that wagon train must be at least a hundred years old. Probably headed for the California gold rush of 1848. Well, we'll come back tomorrow and search this wagon train thoroughly. I'm sure we'll find many things of great interest... The next morning, after an early breakfast, Sam and I followed Professor Stevens back into the cabin. We spent the morning investigating the trunks and boxes we found on the wagons. And among the moldy clothing and 101 household articles, we found faded letters and newspapers which showed the wagon train had crossed the Mississippi in the summer of 1849, headed west for California and gold. We finished rummaging among the effects of the wagons and 
The professor suggested we explore the cavern. We followed him from one cavern to another, each varying in size. Now and then the professor would stop to mark our trail, for the caverns were honeycombed with countless passageways. How far do you think we've come, Professor? I should say we're about miles from the wagon train. Huh? We'll go back a few more minutes. We'll go back now. This place evil. Well, Sam, if there are ghosts here, there's only the ghosts of the people in the wagon train. They wouldn't harm us. I tell you, evil. Feel it. All right. We'll go back. We'll go just a little further. Ten times back. Yeah. Professor, wait a minute. What is it, Martin? Oh, I think I hear running water. Yes, you're right. Come along. We seem to be getting closer. Yes, yes. Evil all around us. Can't be much further. Well, there it is. Yeah. It's a small river. <laughs> Look how quickly it's flowing. Yeah. It probably flows for miles underground and it empties into the Colorado River. There's a professor here along the bank. There's a tremendous pile of fish bones. Yes, yeah, so there is. What? Well, there are even more on the other side of the river. Mm. What do these huge piles of fish bones mean? It's very strange. How do you account for it? I'm afraid that at the moment I can't. Sam, you any ideas about it? Evil all around us. Feel him strong. Professor, he's trembling. Sam, there's nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'll shine my flashlight around, please. We've been watched. Watch? What are you talking about? We'll stay here. I go, Sam. Come back. You haven't even got a flashlight. Sam! Come on, Mark, we've got the catch in the Sam! Wait for us! I can still hear a footstep. We've got the catch here. Didn't stop a serious injury running in the dark like that. Sam! Wait for us! Fishbone piles along the river. Right. 
The river was an everlasting supply of food. They continued to live by the river in the dark. Some probably went insane, died. Others adjusted themselves to their new environment. Professor, you, you think those handful of survivors had descendants who are alive today inside this mountain? Yes, Martin. And it was one of them who clawed sand to death. What can those descendants be like? Being born and, and, and living in darkness. I can only guess. I should imagine they'd be blind or near to it. But their other senses would be remarkably developed. Their physical occurrence. I don't know. It's not like a nightmare. A nightmare you can't awaken from. What, what's to prevent them from attacking us? Our flashlights for one thing. I'm sure light frightens them. Just as fire frightens animals. Fortunately, I have a revolver. Well, we better move on. Wait a minute. What about Sam? There's nothing we can do for him now. Come along, Martin. We must find the trail I marked so that we can get out of here. Uh, seems we've been searching days for the markings you left. Yes. Actually... In ten hours. That's what? The river. Yes. Come along. Yeah. Once we reach the river, we'll be able to pick up the trail I'm on. Well, we're getting closer. Yes. There it is. Here we are. Look, Martin, there's my marking on the passage. We found the trail. Yes. Martin, 2 a.m. We'd better rest for a few hours. We're both too exhausted to go on right now. One of us stand guard. And the other sleeps. All right. I'll, I'll set up the first hour. Thank you, Martin. Keep your flashlight on. Don't worry. I will. In a matter of minutes, the professor fell asleep. I sat on guard, flashing my light slowly around the huge cabin. I looked at my watch in the second scene like minutes and the minutes like hours. My eyes grew heavy and I finally dozed off. Suddenly I awakened in the darkness to hear the professor screaming. Help me! Help me! Shut all the flashlights! I was in the darkness, but I couldn't find it. Then suddenly there was shot. Suddenly, all was quiet. Except for the professor's moans. As I crawled toward him, in the darkness, my hand struck the flashlight. I turned it on, and that was the Scampering past, I fought to keep from screaming. 
darkness seemed to become heavier and more oppressive with each passing moment. And I had the feeling something was silently approaching. I backed up against the passage wall and waited, my eyes straining in the darkness. And then suddenly I was leaped upon by a wild fury. I threw my arms up and played with my face and neck. Again and again, I got the saddle. I like a feel of blood streaming down my face and neck. And then suddenly the deathly clawing ceased. As my attack had sent to ward off something in the dark. As I sank to my knees, I was dimly aware of a fierce fight taking place in men's consciousness. Later. How much later, I have no way of knowing. I became aware of a heavy, calloused hand washing my face and neck with water. I winced in pain as the water flowed into the deep cuts, and then suddenly I remembered all. And remembering all, became aware of the calloused hand washing my face in the presence of someone beside me in the darkness. Who are you? For a moment, the hand hesitated, then resumed washing the neck. Well, can't you speak? Say something! The noise came from its throat that was more than that of an animal than a human being. If I could only see you, do you have a name? I spoke. Seemed to repeat the word name, though I couldn't be sure. Faint from the loss of blood, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. Uh. When I awoke, my face and neck felt stiff and painful. It seemed to sense I was awake, for as I opened my eyes and stared into the darkness, it came to my side. Can't, can't you understand anything at all? Don't my words make any sense to you? Why did you save my life? Brushed against its hand. And I could feel it sharp, claw-like fingers on it. I reached out in the darkness as I touched its face. It bit my hand. <clears throat> I tried to get to my feet, but it placed a strong hand on my shoulder and held me down. At that moment, I realized that not only was it my savior, but my jailer as well. I lost all track of time. Now and then, it would leave me. And I would cautiously get to my feet to steal off, but no sooner had I taken more than a few steps than it would be there at my side, forcing me to return to the bank of the river. I spent my every waking moment trying to think of a way to escape. And then, when my despair was greatest, an idea came to me. The professor had said that the underground river I lay beside emptied into the Colorado River. Though the odds were a hundred to one against my surviving, I knew it was the only possible way of escape. Slowly, I crawled a few remaining feet to the edge of the river, leaning over, started to wash my face. I could sense that it was watching me. I leaned forward a few inches more and fell into the river. As I came up for air in the swift flowing water, I heard a splash beside me. A moment later, I felt it around around me. The current swept us along with breathtaking speed. As we clung to each other, I discovered that it couldn't swim. 
for what seemed hours, the rivers swept us along in the darkness, and I felt myself losing consciousness as I attempted to keep the two of us above water. When, when I regained consciousness, Kathy, we were both lying on a sandbar in the Colorado River, and the sun was beating down on it. Darling, you're delirious from your wound. You need a doctor. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were simple as all that. You're feverish. You need care. Oh, go away, Kathy. Go away. How can I? Leave you alone like this? Don't you understand? I'm not alone. She's here. She? Yes. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? It's turned out to be a she. Out of your mind, you don't know what you're saying. first saw her at the first time. Lying unconscious on that sandbar, my first instinct was to leave her there, but how could I? She'd saved my life in the cavern and then jumped into the river when she thought I was drowning, even though she couldn't swim herself. Martin, I want you to get a grip on yourself. As I was dependent on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light. She's blind. She can't speak yet. She's... Stop talking. <laughs> you can't believe it's true, can you, Captain? Neither could I at first. What are you staring at? Huh? Is there anyone in that bedroom? Huh? Well, I'll soon find out. Why is the door locked? She's in there. Martin, you speak. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'll prove to you there's no one in that room. It's just your imagination. Give me the key to the door. Kathy, Kathy, Give it to me. Thank you. Perhaps when you see the room is empty, you'll be willing to return to town for medical treatment. There. I told you. exciting adventures with the Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of the Mysterious Traveler magazine. And our cast, Lyle Sudrow, Ann Shepard, and Robert Donnelly, with Maurice Trotter in the title role. Phil Tarkin speaking, this program came to you from New York. Mutual's ace commentator Cecil Brown, currently on a three-month fact-finding tour of the world, heads for the Orient on the last lap of his history-making trip. In these last weeks, Mr. Brown will bring you on the on-the-scene reports from such tinderbox areas as India, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Japan, and Honolulu. You won't want to miss any of the eyewitness accounts by this able commentator of the latest happenings in these headline-making spots of the world. 
Be sure to listen to the news reports of Cecil Brown over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Ironized Yeast presents... Lights out, everybody. It is later than you think. This is Arch Obler bringing you another in our series of stories of the unusual. And once again, we caution you, these lights-out stories are definitely not for the timid soul. So we tell you calmly and very sincerely, if you frighten easily, turn off your radio now. But if you're fascinated by the mysterious, the fantastic, the unearthly, then anticipate chills in our story of poltergeist. Now let's go to town. St. Louis woman with her diamond ring. Kicking that man oh, around. No. no, stop that, Kay. What's the matter? Am I scaring the horse? Oh, it seems like a sacrilege singing a song like that out here. This beautiful, clean snow and blue sky. Well, what's wrong with a hot song to keep us warm? If you think the St. Louis blues is going to dirty up the snow, you ought to hear Frankie and Johnny the way I sing it. Oh, stop it, Kay. You're not funny at all. Why can't you enjoy the fresh air without that cabaret sort of thing? Oh, just an old-fashioned gal, eh, Florence? How about you, Edna? Don't you like my songs either? You haven't said anything for the last five minutes. Well, I... I haven't been listening to you to tell the truth. I love to watch the snow sort of flow along under the sleigh. When you say that, gal, smile. Gosh, did you ever see more snow in your life? The man at the hotel said it had been snowing on and off up here for two weeks. I think coming out here to the country is the best thing we three have done since we started rooming together. Hiking in the snow is terribly healthy. Yeah, that's what I'm afraid of. The healthier I get, the worse I feel. <laughs> Crazy idiot. She does say the funniest things, doesn't she? I always say that Kay ought to... Whoa! Hallelujah, we're here. Is this as far as we go, driver? That's right, miss. Can't go no further down this road to count of the drift. Oh, my goodness. The drifts are too deep for a horse. How can we walk through them? I second the motion. Well, you young ladies don't have to worry none so long as you keep going down the valley over there. Snow ain't piled up that way all the way to Ma Jenkins. Oh, well, that's marvelous. Come on, girls. Let's get started. So long. Take care of yourselves, girls. Come on, Edna. Goodbye, Miss Well, Listen to the snow talking at us. It's very dry snow. Our feet rub particles of it together, and the Ooh. friction makes a sound. It's kind of scary, yeah. isn't it? Why? Oh, I don't know. It's just mm. as if the snow was sort of trying to talk to mm. us. I mean, as if it was angry at our trespassing. Hey, don't tell me we're trespassing. I don't want any country squire taking any pot shots at my uh, constitutional amendment with rock salt. No, thank you. Oh, don't talk nonsense, Kay. We're not trespassing. 
Why, this path through the valley here over to Mrs. Jenkins' house is the favorite hike of everyone who comes up this way during the winter. What's Mrs. Jenkins got anyway that makes people walk their feet off? <laughs> Wait till you taste her cooking. Eat? Oh, boy, let's go. It's awfully quiet out here, isn't it? Oh, that's the glory of it. I've had the roar of the subway in my ears so long. Okay, don't walk so fast. Come on, look what I found. Oh, come on, Edna. Oh, please. Let me take your arm. I'm getting out of breath. Well, take it easy. There's no hurry. <sighs> well, what is it, Kay? Look, through the circle of trees here. Look what I discovered. Well, isn't that interesting? It's a sort of a natural amphitheater. Sure. Say, who was this guy, Daniel Boom? What's an amphitheater? Well, that, that means an oval surfing place with rising tiers of seats. It's, you know, like that place we went to for the horse show. Oh. Back in the times of the Greeks, they had outdoor theaters. Listen to the professor. They made use of places just like this, where the ground sloped up and made a sort of a natural arena or stage below. Theater! That's an idea. Sit down, gals, and I'll give you a special performance of the K Follies. Oh, it's awful snowy here, isn't it? I'll trample it down with my spring dance. Welcome, sweet spring. <laughs> she is not dancing in the snow. If I had that girl's energy. She's really graceful, isn't she? I'll bet if she went on the stage, she could... Kay! She fell. Kay! Oh. Kay, did you hurt yourself? Oh, did I land on my dignity. Here, give me a hand. Here, I'll help you. There you are. Oh, did I take a flop. Did you hurt yourself badly? I'll live. What in the world did I trip over? Oh, no wonder... Look at that rock under the snow. No wonder I did a nosedive. Oh, my gee. goodness. There are rocks like that all over. Oh. A person could break their neck if they... Girls, could. what's the matter? What is it? Kay, the rock you tripped over. It... It's not a rock. What are you talking about? Of course it's a rock. Well, yes, but it's something... Something more than that. It's a tombstone. <laughs> tombstone? Oh, no, it, it can't Look be. Look for yourself. It says... Here lies buried the remains of one who, restless in life... Stop! Don't read anymore. Stop! And and all these other stones laying flat on the ground. They're tombstones, too? Yes. Whew! What a place to pick to dance. <gasps> What's the matter, Edna? What did you scream for? Kay, you... You danced on the grave. What? You danced on the grave. I saw you. I saw you do it. You danced on the grave. Okay. Edna, stop it. Stop it. What's come into her? Edna, stop acting like that. Edna, stop for heaven's sake. Control yourself. Okay. Okay, I'm so sorry for you. You danced on a grave. For heaven's sake, stop talking like that. Sure, I danced on a grave. Well, yes, of course she did. It was perfectly accidental. And what if it wasn't? What of it? The poltergeist. The what? Edna Hanson, what are you talking about? What's that word you just used? Poltergeist. Okay, what have you done? You superstitious little fool. If you don't stop talking that way, I'm going to slap your face. What's the matter with you? I didn't do anything. You walked on the grave. You danced on the grave. So Edna, what? be sensible. We all walked on graves, but it was purely accidental. Yeah. We had no intention of desecrating them. It doesn't matter, I tell you. It doesn't matter. The poltergeist. He'll come. I know he will. Oh, what's the use? She's crazy. Edna, what are you talking about? What's the poltergeist? What are you so frightened about? My father, he told me. If you walk on a grave, if you dance on a grave, the poltergeist. Poltergeist what? What is a poltergeist? An evil spirit. It comes out of the grave. It kills. It destroys. It'll kill us. It'll kill us all. Stop it. It throws things oh, out. Oh, please. Yeah. Lay off that way. Edna. But it won't get me. I'll run Edna, away. come back I'll here. She's gone insane. I'll get her. Edna. Okay, catch her. Edna. Edna, don't run away. Nothing will hurt you. Nothing. Oh, Edna, look out. Okay. <laughs> okay, what happened? That stone. 
It hit Edna. Edna. Edna, open your eyes. Blood. Blood all over her face. Kate, who threw that stone? Who threw it? I don't know. It came from the graveyard. Ladies and gentlemen, a deep breath. We all need one before we go on with the story of Kay, Florence, and Edna. The story of Poltergeist on tonight's Lights Out. You and I are rational people, and yet so many strange things are happening today, happening to people all around us. How about you? Are, are you worried about what's going on to your physical condition? Now... To return to Lights Out. Three girls had started on a happy holiday. Now one of them has been gravely injured. Oh. <laughs> now, girls, take it easy. Take it easy. Doctor, she won't die. Tell me she won't die. No, no, of course not. And you're sure that her skull isn't fractured? Oh, absolutely not. Maybe a little concussion, that's all. Well, it's almost five. Our train. Can we get someone to help us carry her down to the station so we can get her on board? Board? I'm telling you, that little friend of yours shouldn't be moved out of bed for a week. If you do, well, it might be just too bad. Oh, Flo, what'll we do? You go home, Kay. I'll stay with her. Oh, no, you won't. I'm not leaving you here alone in this godforsaken place. If you stay, I stay too. Kay, please be sensible. Why should we all lose our jobs when you... If can you'll go... excuse me, you ladies, I've got to be on my way. Oh, yes, of course, Doctor. Is there anything more you can do for Edna, Doctor? Any medicine or something? Nope, I've done all I can do. She's sleeping comfortable now. Uh, Miss? Yes, Doctor? The constable's sick too, you know, and he's sort of dependent on me to... Keep things straight. Now, uh, just how did you say that little friend of yours got hurt? Well, it was just the way we explained, Doctor. That rock came flying and... Yes, yes, I know, but who threw the rock? We... we don't know. What? That's true, Doctor. We don't know. But somebody threw it. You can't change facts. Somebody threw the rock that cracked her head. For heaven's sakes, old man, you don't think we did it. No, okay, miss, I didn't. excited. Doctor, you've got to believe us. It happened just the way we said. All at once, that rock came flying through the air from the direction of the graveyard. It struck Edna, and, and we just didn't see who threw it. All right, if that's your story. Well, you better stay in your rooms here. I mean, you better not be leaving until the constable's on his feet and has a chance to talk with you. I'll be back in a few hours and see how the girl is. He doesn't believe us. What difference does it make? We know what we saw. But what did we see? She was running. She she fell. Kay? Well, let's not fool ourselves. There was no one there to throw that rock. There must have been. But there wasn't. Stop saying that! Aren't you brave enough to face facts? There wasn't any place for anyone to hide. I saw that stone. It seemed to come down out of the air. So slowly. Florence, if you don't stop talking like you that... remember what... What Edna said? It throws things. Stop looking at me like that. You're giving me the jitters. She said the poltergeist throws things. 
spirit of evil. Florence, Rob, have you gone crazy, too? Why should we laugh at things like that? What right have we got to laugh? How do we know there aren't powers we can't see or understand? Powers of evil that revenge and insult, just like an evil man. Kay, how do we know? What are you talking like that for? What are you trying to scare me for? You, you're supposed to be the most intelligent one of us all. You with your college degrees. Sure, sure, I danced on the grave. But the dead are dead and they can't revenge a thing. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of anything. I tell you, it's not... What? It's Edna. Come on. Edna, we're coming to you. Don't be afraid. We're coming. Open the door, Florence. It's not locked. It's stuck. It won't Here, let me. Edna, what is it? What? Oh. Oh. Edna, what? Oh. On your head. I run a decent place, and I don't want you... <gasps> oh. The girl on the bed. Her head. It's crushed flat in by a rock. God in heaven. It's not a rock. It's a tombstone. I I wish I could cry, but I haven't got any more tears. Oh, Edna. Edna. Lawrence, darling, please. You'll kill yourself if you keep on like that. Oh, if this horrible night would only end. It was my fault. Mine. I was the one who got her out here. She didn't want to go. She hates the country. But I made her come. I made her. No. No, you're not the one to blame. I am. I danced on the grave. But she was so good. So sweet. Oh, why does it have to be Edna? Why? You're right. It wasn't right for it to be her, was it? Oh, no. I did it, not her. I did it. I danced on the grave. I danced on the grave. You can't deny what you see with your own eyes. But I tell you, Doc, nobody could have carried that tombstone up the steps without me seeing him, could they? But there it is, ain't it? Yeah. There it is. Either somebody's playing a terrible joke, or... You don't have to say it, Doc. I know. It's just the trouble. You don't know, and I don't know, and nobody knows. Yeah. And... And that tombstone. Well, what about the tombstone? I... I ain't quite sure, but... That's a tombstone out of the old burying grounds up at the bend. You're crazy. No, I ain't either. Well, that place is a good three miles from here. Yeah. I know. Who could have carted a heavy stone like that for three miles? Yeah. Who? Stop looking like that, you flap-eared old fool. Human hands carried that stone in here and killed that girl? Sure. Yeah, the constable will find out who did it the minute he's on his feet again. You wait and see. No, he won't, Doc. 
You're smarter than me and all that, but oh, this time you're wrong. There ain't nobody that takes in breath and leaves out breath like you and me. Or the constable's going to find out who killed that girl. You know that, Doc. Oh, stop talking. I wish the constable was here and this night was over. It's been a terrible night. Terrible clock. Ticking. Ticking. Yeah, I know. I've been sitting here listening to it. I can't stand it anymore. I'll stop it. Why bother with it? Come on to bed, Kay. Please. There's no use sitting there. It won't help her. Yeah. Nothing can help her. But maybe I can help you. Me? It was my fault. Mine. I was the reason it happened. It killed her, and it'll kill you and me, too, unless I stop... No, don't say that. It's true. But why should you be hurt? I'm to blame, not you. Listen, Flo. I'll go out there. There? Out there to the graveyard. What? I'll talk to her. Kay. I'll, I'll tell her I didn't mean to do it. No. But I didn't know where I was dancing. Please. Maybe somehow it'll hear, listen to me, and... And then it won't hurt oh, you. Oh, no, no. I won't let you go out there. It'll kill but you. Florence. It'll kill you, too. But Florence. No, no, I'll hold you. You can't go. You can't. All right. Come on to bed, Kay, please. In the morning, in the morning, things will be different. But it won't. Nothing will hurt us. And then they're right outside the door. They won't let anything get at us. Oh, please, Kay, please, come to bed. Yeah. We'll, we'll pray. Pray? I I don't exactly know how. Just say anything. Anything. Like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now you. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Kay? Kay, are you asleep? I can't sleep anymore. Kay, tomorrow, I mean when it gets light and everything, do you think people will believe us? Do you think so, Kay? I'm not quite sure what happened. I always used to be so sure about things. And now I'd... Kay? Kay, where are you? Kay, where... The window. She went out the window. She's gone out there. To the graveyard. To talk to it. Okay, why did you go? Why did you go? I'll go out there, too. Well, she'll be so frightened out there alone. I'll go, too. I'll go, too. Oh, so cold. Hands, snow so sharp, cutting my legs. Oh, why did you go out there, Kay? Why did you? I've got to find you. Wind. Oh, why doesn't the wind stop? Blow, blow, thou winter wind. 
though I'm not so unkind. Oh, I've got to find you, Kate. I've got to find you. It's snowing. I love snow. Edna didn't like snow. Where are you, Kate? Where are you? I've lost my way. I've lost the road. Where are you, Kate? Kate, where are... Coming to you, Kay. We'll talk to it. We'll talk to it together. We'll tell her we didn't mean any harm, won't we, Kay? Won't we? Poor Edna. We can't help her, Kay. We can't help Edna. But I'm coming to help you, Kay. I'm coming. I'm coming. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. I'm coming, darling. I'm coming to help. I'm coming to help you. I'm coming. I'm coming. I hear you. I hear you calling my name. I hear you. Yes. Yes, I hear you. I hear you. Where are you? Where are you? No! No! This way, Hooper. They must have come this way. <laughs> Climbing out the window like that in the middle of the night. They must have gone crazy, the both of them. Well, let's not worry about that now. We've got to find them. Here, give me that lantern. What is it, Doc? What have you found? A shoe. One of the girl's shoes. My gosh, stuck in the snow. We're going the right way. Come on, move fast. We've got to get to them. Doc, look at this. What is it? Over there. Ain't these footprints? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's right. Footprints. Hello, up ahead. Hello. Doc, we're we're getting pretty close to the old burying grounds. Well, maybe. Oh, look here, Doc. Let's not be fools. Let's wait till morning. What? Let those frightened girls freeze to death. Get along. But, Doc, I... You come uh, with me or the whole town will know what a yellow-livered no-good you are. All right. All right. You don't have to get so sore, Doc. Hello? Hello? Anybody up there? Hello? Doc. Doc, look. What? There they are. Up ahead. Glory be, they're alive. The both of them. Come on. Doc. Doc, look at them. That's the burying ground up there. And they're dancing. Dancing on the graves. What? They must be out of their heads. Come on. We've got to stop them. Doc! Doc, wait for me. Oh, Doc, it's... It's Doc again. Where are they, Doc? Where are the girls? Have they... Have they stopped dancing? Yes. Huh? They've stopped dancing. Did... Did they ever dance? 
What are you talking about, Doc? We saw him. We saw him dancing in this place with our own eyes. Did we? The moonlight. Here it comes again. See with your eyes again. <gasps> oh, no. Both of the girls froze stiff to the ground. Each with her head crushed by a tombstone. Strobler, would you mind telling us, me, whether there actually are such things as poltergeists? All I can tell you is this. There are authenticated records in existence that in the city of London on the 27th day of April, 1872, from four in the afternoon on a Thursday until half past eleven at night, a certain room in a certain house was deluged by stones thrown from no apparent source. The London police surrounded the house, but they found no trace of whoever or whatever was throwing those stones with a murderous violence. I, uh, I see. So much for poltergeist. But what about next week? <laughs> That's something I'll tell you about in a moment. Good. Fair enough. Then if you need more vitamin B and iron, ask your druggist for the genuine, the one and only, ironized yeast tablets. And now, Mr. Obler, what happens next week? Well, anything can happen, but uh, specifically next week, Mangara, a strange title and a strange story. The power of suggestion. The dictators have shown us to what evil purposes that power can be used. Well, next week, a man who... Uh, <laughs> but that, as usual, is next week. Yes. Lights Out, written and directed by Arch Obler, will come to you again next Tuesday at the same time. Be sure to listen for the amazing story of Mungara. And if you need more vitamin B and iron, be sure to try ironized yeast, the one and only ironized yeast, with the big letters IY on the package and on each tablet. It is later than you think. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight... We escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. <laughs> Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. 
At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water, gray-green scum-dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o'-war, and yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round, past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans, and up, and up and up, round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept, and over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing, blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste. What a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that I tell you those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation... The most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they send me somebody... Who that was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed, played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand, yes, gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any longer. 
It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louie! Louie! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. I had the glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Huh? What? The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly, gallian, hag-ridden, curse-driven, must on Shut and up, on. will you? She's luffing. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust, and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Huh? This is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here. Take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. And what is it you... I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi- I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look. Chatterbox, give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. She's going to turn. She better turn soon. 
Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's slow tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, want the glasses again? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say, I pray you! Turn! She's cracking up. The rats! Look! On the water! Like a carpet! They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below! It's open! Come on! Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Reggie, but hurry, hurry! Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Close the door. Can't, can't. Yeah. Let me. Oh, move. You move. Made it. Holy. That was close. One guy in. Look, there. Get him. He was as big as a tarot. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red. His teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, hard and ravenous. And we fought him. Fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louie, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. I could not see the sky. Nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts, and their teeth. The rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any good to stand here and shake. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. Hey, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, they don't light the fire, do they? Guess not. <laughs> Give me another match. <laughs> you don't like that much, do you? Like don't rile them, August. <laughs> Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't <laughs> go away. Not until... Not until what? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. 
They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. Only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, Avis. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the racks. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamps. It caught them. Lift them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning, of a touching, of a moving around and around. And they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. Bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Relieved me at ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early next morning, there stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelate, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will he not hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him, horror-struck, but he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Ah, another one. A latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. August, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. But he didn't come, stop. Come, he went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arm. He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yeah, sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> 
We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, I'll get another bunch together. Yeah, my beauty. That's it. Pile of kill each other. There they go. Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats. It went on all day. And then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come uh, quick! What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy body scudding against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. So what was that? I don't know. It came from below. The storeroom window. They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louis. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... My blood! I'm bleeding! Now, don't worry about it, Louis. Here, look. I'll, I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood! There, now. It's not bad. Just the flesh. Then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through Louis, Louis, we've got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Oh, my blood. What are we going to do? No, no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. the trap door exhausted. While below us, the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. 
And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. Hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. <laughs> Would you like to come in, my beauty? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing <laughs> by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet and slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. As a... I found a coil of wire in the toolkit and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night, I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight... The light went out. There's nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting, all waiting. And then the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars... The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What a... What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. 
She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his vice. Uh, oh, yes. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tadeus, adapted for radio by James Poe and starring Vincent Price as Jean. Supporting Mr. Price were Harry Bartell as August and Jeff Corey as Louis. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key, created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Harry Essman was at the control panel and special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are swimming for your life in the dangerous waters off the Florida Gulf Coast, about to be smashed by a launch carrying a vicious criminal who must kill you or die himself. And on shore 500 yards away... The police are waiting to arrest you for murder. And there can be no escape. Next week, we escape with an exciting tale of temptation and death on the Gulf Coast of Florida as John and Gwen Bagney tell it in Danger at Matagumba. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape! A patch of weeds... A boxer's biography and a mild, lukewarm bath. They're all clues that lead the police of Jackson, Michigan to a killer in the gangbuster story on CBS this Saturday night. It's the case of the double push to be heard on most of these same CBS stations this Saturday night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Columbia Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles in the first production of a unique new summer series by the Mercury Theater on the Air.
single year, the first in the life of the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. Says Collier's Magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. Robert Benchley writes in The New Yorker, The production of the Mercury is, I should say, just about perfect. Time Magazine declares, The brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Welles should feel at home in the sky. For the sky is the only limit which his ambitions recognize. And finally, the United Press remark, Meteoric rise of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater continues unabated. With four hit shows in its first year, the Mercury might well close its door on a season unparalleled in Broadway history. But Mr. Welles has long been working on a project for a greater audience, the Broadways of the entire United States. The Columbia Network is proud to give Orson Welles the opportunity to bring to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked-of theatrical director in America today. And it is this project which Columbia brings you this summer, the first time in its history that radio has ever extended such an invitation to an entire theatrical institution. But here is Orson Welles himself to tell you about it. The director of the Mercury Theater, the star and producer of these programs, Orson Welles. Good evening. The Mercury Theater faces tonight a challenge and an opportunity for which we are grateful. We will present during the next nine weeks many different kinds of stories. Stories of romance and adventure, biography, mystery, and human emotion. Stories by authors like Robert Louis Stevenson, Emil Zola, Dostoevsky, Edgar Allan Poe, and P.G. Wodehouse. In the cast tonight are Martin Gable the Cassius of our production of Julius Caesar, and George Kouloris, who played Antony in that production and appeared also in our Shoemaker's Holiday and Heartbreak House, and other leading Mercury Theater players. We're starting off tonight with the best story of its kind ever written. You will find it in every representative library of classic English narratives. It's Bram Stoker's Dracula. The next time I speak to you, I am Dr. Arthur Seward, George Kouloris plays Jonathan Harker, and Martin Gable plays Dr. Van Helsing. It's Dr. Seward who tells the story, and so for the moment, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in Transylvania. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel... Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda, and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand for this simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. 
It was signed, Dracula. Bukovina! Couch for Bukovina! fly over it with feverish haste. When it grew dark, there seemed to be some excitement among the passengers. They kept speaking to their driver and looking at me and urging him on to greater speed. The crazy coach rocked on its great leather strings. The mountains seemed to come nearer to us on either side. Coachman! Coachman! What is this? Where are we? You are nearing your destination, young hair. This is the Borga Pass. There were black, rolling clouds overhead, and in the air, the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. Now, we were through the pass. The young hair is not expected after all. You are early tonight, my friends. A calèche with four horses had drawn up beside us. Let me help you, sir. The coachman smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. We began to move. I looked back. The coach and its load of passengers had vanished from sight. We swept into the darkness of the past. I struck a match. It was within a few minutes of midnight. And then a dog began to howl somewhere far down the road. The wind was rising, moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees flashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though, as though they were closing round us to every side. We kept on ascending, always ascending. The howling of wolves was growing less. Presently, it ceased altogether. And just then, the moon broke through the black cloud. There was a ring of wolves running alongside the carriage in silence, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long sinuated limbs and shaggy hair. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely, go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. Face was strong, very strong, aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel looking with peculiarly sharp white teeth. Hmm. You hear them, Mr. Harker? The wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Ah, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it during the night. 
This castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. I explored. There are doors, doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked. The door to the great hall, the door to the courtyard, every door in the castle is closed, bolted against me. The castle of Dracula is a prison, and I am a prisoner. The next night, I couldn't sleep. So after a few hours, I got up and lighting my candle, I placed my shaving mirror on the dressing table and was just beginning to shave. You seem restless, Mr. Harker. I hadn't seen him, although the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I turned to the glass again. Count Dracula was close to me, and I could see him over my shoulder, but there was no reflection of him in the mirror. It was blank. I started and cut myself on the side of the throat. The blood was trickling down my neck. Count, my mirror! Wipe the blood from your face, Mr. Harker. And take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. When I woke, I found most of my things were gone. My passport, my notes, my letter of credit. I could find no trace of them anywhere. And my door is locked from the outside. June 20th. There is work of some kind going on in the castle. Now and then I hear the faraway muffled sound of mattock and spade. And last night, the second of the predated letters which Dracula made me write, the second of that series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth, went forth. Count Dracula. Yes, my young friend. Well, what of me? When am I free? When can I leave this place? Free? Mr. Harker, you're always free. You want to leave? Would you like to leave tonight? Yes, yes, in God's name. My dear young friend, not an hour should you wait in my house against your will. Come, follow me. The door seems to be bolted. How strange. The door is locked. Well, in God's name, open it. As you will, Mr. Harker. You English have a proverb which is very close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Good night, Mr. Harker. Shut the door! Shut the door! I tell you, shut the door! The door is shut, Mr. Harker. I take it. You will remain. Morning, June the 30th. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Oh, God preserve my sanity. I have never seen Count Dracula by day. At sunrise, at the first cock crow, he is gone. I... I don't understand these things. I only know that the wolves obey him, and that he is a man with hair on the palm of his hands, with sharp teeth, and no blood in his face. He casts no shadow. He cannot be seen in a glass. And he moves like a bat across the sheer face of the castle walls. He eats no food and is mortally afraid of the crucifix. As I write this, I hear in the courtyard the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. 
and there is in the passageway below a sound of heavy boxes being set down. Boxes shaped like coffins. And I know what they hold. The boxes are filled with holy earth from the chapel beneath the castle. This is the last box being nailed down. And now I hear the heavy feet tramping again. The door shut. The chains rattle. courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips. Help! 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 The white hands have gone. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Seward. Mr. Harker's journal terminates at this point. I now present in evidence a clipping dated August 8th of that year from the Yorkshire Telegraph from our correspondent in Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record was experienced here today. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but Saturday evening was fine. The band was playing. The piers were crowded with holidaymakers. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and there was a dead calm. There were but few lights at sea. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner under full canvas, which was seemingly going westward. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke. And there, with all sails set, was the foreign schooner rushing with terrific speed toward the shore. A searchlight was turned on her. And there, lashed to the helm, was a corpse with drooping head which swayed horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. A moment later she crashed. And then a strange thing was seen. At the very instant she touched, a huge dog sprang up on deck from below and running forward jumped from the bow onto the sand and making straight up the east cliff toward the graveyard vanished into the night. The coast guard going aboard at dawn found the dead man fastened to a spoke of the wheel. Tightly clutched in one hand was a crucifix. The man must have been dead for quite two days. In the pocket of the dead man's coat was found a bottle, carefully corked, containing a roll of paper. This proved to be an addendum to the ship's log. There was found on board only a small amount of cargo and that of a most unusual nature. Apparently the ship carried nothing but earth, common earth, packed away in wooden boxes, shaped much like coffins. of the Demeter, July 6th, finished taking in cargo, a queer cargo, boxes of earth, at noon set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, four hands, two mates, cook, and myself, captain, July 11th, entered Bosporus, at dark, passed through Dardanelle, mate reported in morning that one of crew, Valyodin, was missing. Took Larbert watch eight bells last night. He was relieved by Chilege. Yeah. came to his There's bunk. something aboard oh. this ship. <laughs> no, no. Don't laugh, Captain. In the rain last night. Oh. A tall, thin man go up companion way and along the deck forward and disappear. When I go to the bow, no one. And the hatchways all closed. 
July 22nd. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails. No time be frightened. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well, July 24th. Last night, another hand was lost. Disappeared. My Chilean. Leave all watch midnight. Then we never see him again. Double watch now. Double hey, watch. don't take watch alone no more. Double watch. Double watch. July 29th. Had single watch tonight as crew too tired to double. When morning comes. Hey! Hey, Milo! I went to relieve the man at wheel, and when I got to it, found no one there. It's here. I know it now. I saw it, like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bows looking out. I gave it the knife, and my knife went through it. What? Empty as air. What is it? What are you talking about? It's here, and I'll find it. It's in gold, in one of those boxes of earth. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. And see. He is mad. Stark raving mad. It's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as common earth. <laughs> Down in the hole. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. August 4. I am all alone on my ship. And still the fog. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed. And in the dimness of the night... I saw it. I saw him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a sailor in the blue water. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them I shall tie that which it dare not touch. My crucifix. I am growing weaker, and the night is coming on. God and the Blessed Virgin help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. You are listening to the Columbia Network's first presentation in a new summer series of unique dramatic productions featuring Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air.
In just a moment, our story of Bram Stoker's Dracula will continue. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. We continue now with Columbia Network's presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in Dracula. Telegram, Seward, Perfect, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. Lucy was tenra in alarming condition. Cannot diagnose. Come at once. Seward. Telegram, Van Helsing, Amsterdam, to Seward, Perfect. I'm on my way to you. Please arrange the examination immediately, my arrival, Van Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, I must now explain that six months before the events recorded here, I had become engaged to a young lady, Lucy Westenra. We were to have been married in the spring. My old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, arrived at four the next afternoon. I took him at once to Lucy's house. She lay in a bed asleep. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums. The bones of her face stood out. Young Miss is bad. Very bad. She must have blood or she will die. Yet she is not anemic. The qualitative analysis of her blood gives quite normal condition. It is strange. I do not like to think how strange. Look! My God, her throat, look! The black velvet band that she always wore had dragged up a little and showed a red mark on her throat. Just over the external jugular vein were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome looking. The edges were white and worn looking. Well? Well, what is it, Professor? What's wrong with her? Speak frankly, you can tell me the worst. I wish I could, Stuart. I wish I could. But I do not dare. But won't you tell me any, anything? I will tell you this. Your young lady is in a danger greater than death. You must believe me. If you leave her for one moment and harm befalls, you will not sleep easy thereafter. September 8th. I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. Night, dear. You can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise if any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. Well, will you really? Then I'll sleep. I sat all night by her bedside. And she did not wake once during the night, although her bows or a bat or something flapped almost angrily against the window panes. September 11th. Still quoting from my private journals. At this time that I received a message from Perfleet. Read 10.20 p.m. St. John's Hospital. Serious complications. Case 891. Your immediate presence, London. Imperative. I had no choice. Sometime later, a paper was found among Lucy Westenra's belongings. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the window was closed. Dr. Van Helsing had directed. About two in the morning, I awakened. I went to the door, called out. Arthur! Arthur! There was no answer. Something's broken the window. In the room, alone. I dare not go out. 
Afsins endi. Er full of specks floating circling the draft from the window. The light burns blue. What am I to do? Something very sweet and very bitter all around me. And I seem sinking into deep water. And there's a singing in my ears. Now shall be flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. September 12th. Late. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. We found her sprawled on the floor. There was a draft in the room from the broken window. Her throat was bare, showing the two wounds, looking horribly white and mangled. We are too late, my friend. We have failed. God's will be done. She's dying. Yes. She's dying. Stay beside her. It will make much difference, mark me. Whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. It was late in the afternoon before she opened her eyes. Arthur, oh my love, I'm so glad you've come. I took her hands and knelt beside her. Her breath came and went like a tired, peaceful child's. And then the light from the setting sun fell on her face, and then, insensibly, a strange change came over her. Her eyes grew suddenly dull and hard. Her breathing was heavy. The mouth opened, and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look large and sharp. Oh, oh my love, I'm so glad you've come. Kiss me. Very darling, kiss me. Not for your life. Not for your living soul and hers. <laughs> Lucy! She's dead. Poor girl. That's peaceful at last. The end. Not so. It is only the beginning. Wait and see. September 25th, a Hempstead mystery. The Kensington horror, the stabbing woman, and the woman in black are vividly recalled to mind by a series of events that have taken place recently in the neighborhood of Hempstead. Several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or failing to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases, the children have given us their excuse that they have been with a beautiful lady who offered them chocolate. In each case, the child was found to be slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wound seemed such as might be made by a rat or a small dog. The Hempstead her, another child injured by the beautiful lady. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night was only discovered late in the morning. It has the same tiny wound in the throat. Well, Stuart, what do you think of that? You mean to tell me, my friend, that you still have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? 
Nervous prostration. Following great loss and waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or wasted? You are a clever man, my friend, and a good doctor. But you do not believe that there are things that you cannot understand. You are wrong, Stuart. Are you aware of all the mysteries of life and death? Can you tell me why in the pampas there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck those veins? Hmm? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on trees all day and then when the sailors sleep on deck because it is hot, flit down on them and then in the morning are found dead men as white as Miss Lucy was? I understand none of these things. After tonight, Stuart, if you dare to come with me, perhaps then you will understand. September 29th. Before dawn. Now it is done. And I would sooner die a thousand deaths than live again to what I did this night. We will spend the night you and I here in this churchyard where Miss Lucy is buried. We enter the tomb, then we open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Take care, Van Helsing. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Then there can be no wrong to her, but if she is not dead... In some difficulty, we found the West End tomb. I took up my place behind a yew tree. On one side of the tomb, Van Helsing on the other... Chilled and frightened. Suddenly, I saw something moving between two yew trees. A dim, white figure which held something at its breast. The figure stopped. I could not see the face, for it was bent down over what I saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep. Or a dog as it lies before the fire and dreams. Then the thing saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl. The lovely blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If ever a face meant death, I saw it at that moment. Then suddenly she turned and vanished in the direction of the tomb. Child is not harmed. We leave him in a safe place where the police find him. There's more to do. Come. Now we were in the tomb. Then in the coffin. The thing lay... Like a nightmare of Lucy, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained mouth. Van Helsing never looked up. From his bag, he took out a book, his operating knives, a heavy hammer, and a round wooden stake, some two or three inches thick, sharpened to a fine point, and hardened over a fire. Stuart! The life of this unhappy woman is just begun. When she become what you call undead, there comes with the change the curse of immortality. She cannot die, but must go on age after age adding new victims, because all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on others. So the circle goes on, ever widening as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. But if this lady, this undead, be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall be again free. Tell me, what am I to do? Take this stake in your left hand, the hammer in your right. Yes. Place the point over the heart. Yes. Then, when I begin the prayer for the dead, in God's name, strike. 
Are you ready? Now, Domine Jesu Christe, Fili de Vivi, qui mans tuas ex voluntate patri. On the morning of July 11th, a man was found on the border of Transylvania. He talked wildly of wolves and boxes of earth and blood. He gave his name as Jonathan Harker. In the hospital at Clausenburg, he improved sufficiently to make possible his removal to England. I'm still quoting from my own personal papers. But there his condition remained so serious that he was committed for observation to a private ward in my hospital at Perthite. Here he did so well that in three weeks he was completely recovered. It was during this time that his wife, Minna Harker, brought to the attention of Dr. Van Helsing and myself the journal that her husband had kept while a prisoner in the castle of a certain Count Dracula in Transylvania. I have before me the record of a meeting that took place in my study in Perthite, transcribed by Minna Harker. October 1st. Meeting began soon after 8. Jonathan next to me. Dr. Seward opposite to Van Helsing at the head of the table. My friends... There are such things as vampires. Had I known at first what now I know, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who love her. The vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong that he can direct all the elements. The storm, the flood, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things, the moth and bat, the owl and the fox and the wolf. How, then, are we to begin our strike to destroy him? How shall we find his place? And having found it, how can we destroy him? My friends, it is a terrible task that we undertake. To fail here is not mere life or death. If we fail, we become as him. Foul things of the night, as him. What do you say? I answer for myself. Come me in. I'm with you. The professor laid a small golden crucifix on the table. We took hands, and our solemn pact was made. My friends, we too are not without strength. The vampire flourishes on the blood of the living. Without this, he cannot live. He throws no shadow. He makes no reflection in a mirror. He can transform himself to a wolf, to a bat. He can come on moonlight rays as elemental dust he can see in the dark. He can do all these things. Yet he is not free. His power ceases at the coming of the day. Then, until night, he must remain in the shape in which he finds himself. And except in his coffin home, in those earth boxes, he cannot rest. When we can confine him in his coffin, then, my friends, if we obey what we know, we will destroy him. At that moment, something flapped wildly against the window, then. You hit it? I don't know. We looked out of the window. Against the black sky, we could see nothing. Later in our position, from the Count's castle in Transylvania to Whitby came fifty boxes of earth, 
All of these, to our certain knowledge, were delivered at Carfax. Recently, 12 of these boxes have been removed. First step, ascertain whether all the rest remain in the deserted house next door or whether any more have been removed. We must trace each of these boxes and sterilize the earth with holy water so that he can no longer seek safety in it. And we must hurry. The events of the next few days are described in Jonathan Harker's journal. October 2nd, 5 a.m. Just returned from the empty house. Left Mina here at home. Well, we've done our work at Carfax. The place was filthy. The air stagnant and foul and alive with rats. We counted the boxes. Only 38 of them. And over each one, the professor went through his same mysterious work. It was dawn when we got back. I found Mina asleep. She looks paler than usual. October 2nd. Soon after they left, I fell asleep. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs. And then there was silence. I got up and looked out of the window. There was a thin streak of white mist moving across the grass along the wall of the house. It dawned on me that the air in the room was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight came only like a tiny red spark through the fog. I could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker. Then, as I looked, the spark divided and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes. You shall be flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. October 2nd, 8 p.m. We're on the track. Twelve boxes were delivered last week to an empty house at 347 Piccadilly. My dear friends, until the sun sets tonight, Dracula must retain whatever form he now has. We have this day to hunt out all his lairs and sterilize them. Then he will have no place where he can move and hide. But we have only until sunset. The house in Piccadilly was empty. After one of perfectly the same sickening smells in the air. On the table we found a clothesbrush, a brush and a comb and a basin. The latter containing dirty water which was reddened as if with blood. The boxes are back here. Eight... Nine, ten, eleven. Only eleven. There's a twelfth box somewhere. Gentlemen, it is after six. The sun is setting. We've no time to lose. He will return at any moment. Open the boxes. Quiet. Listen. It is he! The window! You waste your bullets, gentlemen. You think you'll bear for me? You with your pale faces all in a row like sheep in a butcher's. You think you've left me without a place to rest. But I have more. The time is on my side. The one you love is mine already. I have known her. Already my mark is on her throat. Flesh.
flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood. She is with me always, over land or sea. October 4th morning, another meeting in the study of Turkey. We must find that last remaining box, gentlemen, we must find it. As long as that earth exists impure, as long as there remains one place of refuge for Dracula, there is no safety and no peace for any soul in England. And for the undead, never peace so long as he lives. Blood of my blood. Blood of my blood. Mina! How do you know that? Oh, well, quiet, quiet. With me. With me always. Over land and sea. Mina, darling, how did you know that Dracula said those... I don't know. The words just came. Strange. There are times when somehow I feel that I'm with him. At sunset? Yes. Just at sunset. And again at sunrise. Dr. Van Helsing, if I... If at that time, you... Have you the courage? Courage for what? What do you mean? Dr. Van Helsing here, your question. I will question her, yes. In a state of hypnosis. The one you love is already mine, he said. She is with me always, over land or sea. Ah, Count Dracula. Perhaps she will betray you if she is really with you, this one we love. Who knows? If she is really with you, over land or sea. Blood of my blood. Mina. Yes? Answer me, Mina. Are you with him? Yes, I am with him. Where are you? I do not know. It is all dark. What do you hear? The lapping of water. I can hear it on the outside. Then you are on a ship? Yes. What else do you hear? There is the creaking of an anchor What are you doing? Still. Oh, so still. It is like death. It's like death. Here is a report from Mats and Peabody. Shipbrokers. Dated October 5th, according to Lloyd's List, the only sailing ship that left for the Black Sea yesterday was the Tsarina Katrina, bound for Varna. Some hours before she sailed, a man came alongside, all in black, driving a cart with a great box in it. This he lifted down single-handed and carried below. No one remembers having seen him after that as heavy mist came up over Doolittle Dock until sailing time. The rest of London Harbor remained completely clear. Our plans are made. The average sailing time from London to the Black Sea is three weeks. We can travel overland to the same place in three days. We shall be there waiting for him when he arrives. October 15th, arrive barn about five o'clock. Mina seems stronger. Every morning before sunrise and just before sunset, she speaks to Van Helsing in a trance. Are you with him, Mina? Tell me, are you with him? I am with him. What can you see? Nothing. All is dark. What can you hear? I can hear the waves. 
lapping against the sheep and the water rushing by. The wind is high. I can hear it in the shrouds and the bow throws back the foam. So, Zarina Katrina is still at sea, hastening on her way to Brana. The Count cannot cross warning water, so he cannot leave the ship without being observed. What do you hear, Mina? Happy waves and rushing water. Darkness. Darkness and wind. A whole week of waiting. Daily telegrams from Lloyd's. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Not yet reported. Rushing water and creeping mud. Darkness. Darkness and wind. October 24. Telegram. Lloyd's London to Harker. Darina Katrina reported this morning. From Dardanelle. Lloyd's London to Harker, October 28th. Darina Katrina and heavy fog reported entering Galatz Harbor at 1 o'clock today. Galatz! Galatz is 38 hours from here. And the first train for Galatz leaves at 6.30 tomorrow morning. My friends, we have lost. Three hours late. A man come aboard with an order an hour before sunup to receive a box for a party by the name of Dracula. That is Pepper's, a right, uh, Emanuel Hillsheim, his name was. Mr. Hillsheim? Yes. You went over the box yesterday. I get the Kyloff by order. Kyloff. Mr. Kyloff? Kyloff. This morning they find him dead inside the churchyard of St. Peter. They find him dead. With his throat torn open. October 30th, evening. There are two ways in which Dracula can get back to his own place. By land or by water. We've examined the map and find the most likely river is the Seraph. You and I see what will charter a steam launch and follow him up the river. Van Helsing and Mina will take the train to Veresti, and from there they will from go... From there we shall go in the track where Harker went from Bistrit over to Borgo. If you have not caught him before, we shall be awaiting Dracula there. <laughs> Got a carriage here, and we start in an hour. Our enemy is still on the river. October 31st. We can run at good speed up the river at night. There's plenty of water, and the banks are wide apart. November 1st, evening. No news all day. We hear that a big boat went up the river before us, going at more than usual speed. 
day driving. The country gets wilder as we go. By morning, we shall reach the Borgo Pass. November the 4th, evening. We've left the launch. We've got horses, and we follow on the track along the river. We are armed. Look! Quick! There they are now! Heading west! With the dawn, we could see the Slovaks some miles before us, dashing along the river with their wagon. On it is the great box. Late in the afternoon, we reached the Burgo Pass. Van Helsing, look, look! We could see a long way all around us. Far off, beyond the white waste of snow, was the river like a black ribbon curling. Between us and the river, not afar off, came a group of men, mounted Slovaks hurrying along. In the midst of them was a wagon which swept from side to side. On the wagon was a great box. Look! We see two horsemen, following fast, coming up from the south. Stuart and Parker, the Slovaks with their heavy wagon are losing their guards. Now the horsemen are not more than a mile behind us. Now the wagon is quite close to us. Can see the great box swaying crazily. Now they are almost upon us. Now has happened a strange thing. The wagon smashed into a great rock buried in the snow, lost its front wheels, and turned over on its side, jammed against the stone. The horses tore loose from their traces and bolted, and the Slovaks scatter and vanish after them. Then silence. Silence like comes uh, after ringing a bell. Look, his face. It is Dracula, sprawled out stiff and twisted in the smear of his own holy earth. The box, in falling, has emptied the dirt onto the snow. His face is old looking. The skin is like paper. But to Seward, there's no time. Look at the sun. Sunset. In one minute, there's darkness, and he is forever lost to us. Have you the stake of wood and the hammer? Yeah. Now, Seward, pray for us. Kneel down and pray. Harker, the stake of wood over his heart. Be not afraid, Harker. Do not look into his eyes. The hammer. Now, Harker, strike. Strike. Flesh of my flesh. Guilt of my guilt, death of my death, speak and be manifest in the instant of your master's peril. Elements of darkness, rain, evil winds, mist and mold and tempest. Right! This instant is no longer than the space between two heartbeats. But the night is not here, and I am lonely. Come to your master, my children. Beguile him now in the instant of his peril. 
beguile him with the sound of your names. Claw. Wing. Tooth. Scale. Tissue of flesh. Strike, Harker, strike! There is one very dear to me who has not answered. My love. Mena. There is less than a minute between me and the night. You must speak for me. You must speak with my heart. Give them to me! Jonathan, give them to me! The stake of wood and the hammer! Arthur! I shall never forget that moment. The look on poor Mina's face as she stood there. The angry scar standing out on her throat. Her eyes like living coals in the last red of the sunset. She had torn the stake and the hammer out of my hands with the strength of an animal. Mina, do you know what you've done, woman? You know what you've done to us? You've released him, the evilest fiend. Look! The sun! As we looked down at Dracula, the eyes saw the sinking sun, and the hate in them turned to triumph. Flesh of my flesh, come to me, my love. Come into the night and the darkness. You have served me well, my love, my bride. Ladies and gentlemen, all the evidence in this case is now before you. I've added nothing, and to the best of my knowledge, I've omitted nothing that might help to throw light on the extraordinary events of the year 1891, which culminated on that terrible evening in the Borgo Pass. There remains only this one last report. When Mina Harker seized the stake and hammer from her husband, I believe she was under some form of hypnosis. She herself remembers nothing. But whatever influence was at work on her, she must, at the last moment, have rejected it. For at the exact instant the sun disappeared, it was Mina Harker who drove the stake through the heart of the thing that called itself Dracula. At that same instant, even as we looked, the wound on the side of her throat was no more. As for Dracula, before the scream of the creature had died from our ears, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. In the final moment of dissolution, there was in the face... A look of peace, such as I never could have imagined, might have rested there. Tonight's production of Dracula by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater was the first of nine CBS broadcasts in which this brilliant group will bring to life a series of great narratives, all presented in the immediacy of the first-person singular. In presenting them each Monday evening at this time during the summer season, the Columbia Network is bringing a complete theatrical producing company to the air for the first time. In the cast tonight, Dr. Van Helsing was played by Martin Gable, Jonathan Harker by George Kaloris, Dr. Seward by Orson Welles, the Russian captain by Ray Collins, the mate by Carl Swenson, Mina Harker by Agnes Moorhead, Lucy Westenra by Elizabeth Farrah, and Count Dracula by Orson Welles. Bernard Herman composed the original music and conducted Dan Seymour speaking. Davidson Taylor supervised the production for the Columbia Network. 
And now here is the director to tell you about next week's Mercury Theater production, Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, what are your favorite stories? If there is one you're particularly fond of and would like to hear on the air, will you please write me about it? Next week, the Mercury Theater is going to tell you Robert Louis Stevenson's exciting yarn about pirates and the sea, Treasure Island. Until then, just in case Count Dracula's left you a little apprehensive, one word of comfort. When you go to bed tonight, don't worry. Put out the lights and go to sleep. It's all right. You can rest peacefully. That's just a sound effect. There. Over there in the shadow, see? It's nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. I think it's nothing. But always remember, ladies and gentlemen, there are werewolves. There are vampires. Such things do exist. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California presents... Suspense! Tonight, in response to requests from many thousands of listeners, Roma Wines bring you the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer star, Miss Agnes Moorhead, in Sorry, Wrong Number, a suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills, is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live, to your happiness and entertaining guests, to your enjoyment of everyday meals. Before we bring you Agnes Moorhead and our suspense play, here's a message from Roma Wines. Today, big transports were warped into piers on both sides of the continent. Thousands of Americans came home, home for good. If you are waiting for someone to come running up your steps, you must have filled your pantry with good things to enjoy. One of the good things to enjoy is Roma California Sherry, as first called at dinner or later in the evening. In the words of famed hostess Elsa Maxwell, there is nothing friendlier, nothing more heartwarming than delicious Roma Sherry, a good and happy wine. Golden amber with a rich nut-like taste. Serve cool. Roma Sherry, like all famous Roma wines, is made from carefully selected grapes from California's choicest vineyards. Grapes gathered at the peak of their flavor goodness when every grape is hanging firm and full on the vine. 
quickly but gently pressed, then by a process as slow as time, brought to delicious liquid perfection and bottled in Roma's famed wineries. Always unvaryingly good, yet Roma wines cost only pennies a glass. Remember, because of uniformly fine quality at reasonable cost, more Americans enjoy Roma than any other wine. R-O-M-A, Roma Wines. Yes, right now a glassful would be very pleasant as Roma Wines bring you a remarkable tale of suspense. And with sorry wrong number, Lucille Fletcher's incomparable study in terror and with the performance of Miss Agnes Moorhead, Roma Wines hope indeed to keep you in suspense. Operator, I've been dialing Murray Hill 40098 now for the last three quarters of an hour, and the line is always busy. I don't see how it could be busy that long. Will you try it for me, please? I will be glad to try that number for you. One moment, please. I don't see how it could be busy all this time. It's my husband's office. He's working late tonight, and I'm all alone here in the house. My health is very poor, and I've been feeling so nervous all day. Ringing Murray Hill 40098. Hello? 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 Is Mr. Stevenson there? Hello? 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 George? Yes, sir. This is George speaking. Hello? Who's this? What number am I calling, please? I'm here with our client. Oh, good. Is everything okay? Is the coast clear for tonight? Yes, George. He says the coast is clear for tonight. Okay. Okay. Where are you now? In a phone booth. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Very well. You know the address. I know, I know. At 11 o'clock, the private patrolman goes around to the bar on 2nd Avenue for a beer. That's right. 11 o'clock. Okay. Be sure that all the lights downstairs are out. There should be only one light visible from the street. Okay, okay. What's that? Uh, Just a minute, George. Oh, our client tells me that at 11.15 a train crosses the bridge. It makes a noise in case her window is open and she should scream. Oh, oh yes. hello. What number I is this, it. please? Okay, I understand. What? That's 11.15 the train. Yes. Do you remember everything else, George? Yes. I'll make it quick, as little blurred as possible. What? Because our client does not wish to make her suffer long. That's right. You'll use a knife? Yes, a knife will be okay. Then afterwards, I remove the rings and bracelets and the jewelry in the bureau drawer. Because (laughs) our client wishes it to look like simple robbery. Don't worry. Everything's okay. I never... Oh, how awful. How unspeakably awful. 
I never... Your call, please. Operator, I've just been cut off. I'm sorry. What number were you calling? Why, it was supposed to be Murray Hill 40098, but it wasn't. Some wires must have got crossed. I was caught in the wrong number, and I... I've just heard the most dreadful thing, something about a murder. And, well, operator, you'll simply have to retrace that call at once. I beg your pardon. I don't quite... May I help you? Well, I, I, I know it was a wrong number, and I had no business listening, but these two men... They were cold-blooded fiends, and they were going to murder somebody, some poor innocent woman who was all alone in a house near a bridge, and we've got to stop them. we just got to. What number are you calling, Well, please? that doesn't matter. This was a wrong number, and you dialed it for me, and we've got to find out what it was immediately. What number did you call? Oh, why are you so stupid? What time is it? Are you, do you mean to tell me you can't find out what that number was just now? I'll connect you with the chief operator. Oh, I think it's perfectly shameful. Now, now look. Look, it was obviously a case of some little slip of the finger. I, I told you to try Murray Hill 40098 for me, and you dialed it, but your finger must have slipped, and I was connected with some other number, and I could hear them, but they couldn't hear me. Now... I simply fail to see why you couldn't make that same mistake again on purpose, why you couldn't try to dial Murray Hill 40098 in the same sort of careless way. Murray Hill 40098. I will try to get it for you. Oh, thank you. I am sorry, Murray Hill 40098 is busy. I will call you. Operator, operator, operator. Your call, please. You didn't try to get that wrong number at all. I asked you explicitly, and all you did was dial correctly. I am sorry. What number are you calling? Well, can't you for once forget what number I'm calling and do something for me? Now, I, I want to trace that call. It's my civic duty, and it's your civic duty to trace that call and apprehend those dangerous killers. And if you won't... I will I... connect you with the chief operator. Well, please. Talk. This is the chief operator. Oh, a chief operator. I, I want you to trace a call, a telephone call, immediately. I, I don't know where it came from or who was making it, but it's absolutely necessary that it be tracked down because it was about a murder that someone's planning, a, a terrible, cold-blooded murder of a poor, innocent woman tonight at 11.15. I see. Well, can you trace it for me? Can you track down those men? I'm not certain. It depends. Depends on what? Depends on whether the call is still going on. Well, if it's I, a live call, we can trace it on the equipment. If it's been disconnected, we can. Disconnected? If the parties have stopped talking to each other. Oh, well, well, but of course they must have stopped talking to each other by now. That was at least five minutes ago, and they didn't sound like the type who would make a long call. Well, I can try tracing it. May I have your name, please? Mrs. Stevenson. Mrs. Albert Stevenson. But listen, and your now, telephone number, please. Uh, Plaza 32098. Uh, but, but if you go Why on do wasting you want all this... Why call Trace, please? Why? Oh, uh, well, uh, no reason. I, I mean, I, I merely felt very strongly that something ought to be done about it. These men sounded like killers. They're dangerous. They're, they're going to murder this woman at 11.15 tonight, and I thought the police ought to know. Have you reported this to the police? Well, uh, no, no, not yet. You want this call checked purely as a private individual? Yes, yes, but meanwhile... Well, I'm sorry, Mrs. Stevenson, but I'm afraid we couldn't make this check for you and trace the call just on your say-so as a private individual. But I... I can't... We must have something more official. Oh, for heaven's sake. You mean to tell me I can't report that there's going to be a murder without getting tied up in all this red tape? Why, it's perfectly idiotic. Well, all right, all right, I'll call the police. Thank you. I'm sure that would be the best way to... Ridiculous. I never heard of this. No. Police department. 
Oh, you have to go. Your call, please. The police department. Get me the police department, please. Thank you. Ringing the police department. Oh, dear. Do you have to dial? Why can't you ring them direct? Oh, this Wait. Police station, precinct 43, Sergeant Martin speaking. Uh, police department, uh, this is Mrs. Stevenson. Uh, Mrs. Albert Smythe Stevenson of 53 North Sutton Place. I- I'm calling up to report a murder. Uh, I-, I mean, uh, the murder hasn't been committed yet, but I just overheard plans for it over the telephone, over a wrong number that the operator gave me. And I've been trying to trace down the call myself, but everybody is so stupid, and I guess in the end you're the only people who could do anything. Yes, ma'am. Well, it it, it was a perfectly definite murder. I heard their plans distinctly. Uh, two men were talking, and they were going to murder some woman at 11.15 tonight. She lived in a house near a bridge. Are you listening to me? Huh? Oh, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And and uh, there was a private patrolman on the street. He was going to go around for a beer on Second Avenue, and uh, there was some third man, a client, who was paying to have this poor woman murdered. They were going to take her rings and bracelets and use a knife. Well, it it's unnerved me dreadfully, and I'm not well. I'm very nervous. I see. I, I see. And uh, when was all this, ma'am? Uh, well, about eight minutes ago. Oh, you, 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 then you can do something. You, you do understand. What is your name, ma'am? Mrs. Stevenson. Mrs. Albert Stevenson. Uh-huh. And your address? 5353 North Sutton Place. That's near a bridge. The Queensborough Bridge, you know. And, and we have a private patrolman on our street. And Second Avenue is the and, next uh, street, And, what was you the know? number you were calling, please? Murray Hill 40098. But that wasn't the number I overheard. I mean, Murray Hill 4098 is my husband's office. Well, I... I... Well, he's working late tonight, and uh, I was trying to reach him to ask him to come home. Uh I'm an invalid, you know, and uh, it's the maid's night off, and I hate to be alone even though he says I'm perfectly safe as long as I have the telephone right beside my bed. Uh, Well, we'll we'll look into it, Mrs. Stevenson, and uh, see if we can check it with the telephone company. But the telephone company said they couldn't check the call if the parties had stopped talking. I've already taken care of that. I have, and personally, I feel you ought to do something far more immediate and drastic than just check the call. Well, what see, good is checking the call if they stop talking? By the time you track it down, they'll already have committed the murder. Uh, well, we'll take care of it now. Don't you worry. I'd say the whole thing called for a search, a complete and thorough search of the whole city. Yes, but... Why, I, I'm very near the bridge, and I'm not far from 2nd Avenue, and I know I'd feel a whole lot better if you sent around a radio car to this neighborhood at once. And what makes you think the murder's going to be committed in your neighborhood, ma'am? Well, I... I don't know. Only the coincidence is so horrible. Second Avenue, the patrolman, the bridge. Uh, Well, uh, look, uh, you see, Second Avenue is a very long street, man. Well, I know that. You know how many bridges there are in the city of New York alone? Yes. Uh, Not to mention Brooklyn, Staten Island, Queens, and the Bronx. And how do you know that there isn't some little house on Staten Island, on some little Second Avenue you never heard about? How do you know they were even talking about New York at all? But I heard the call on the New York dialing system. Well, maybe it was a long-distance call you were heard. Oh, I... Oh, you know, uh, telephone's a funny thing. But I did... Now, look, lady, look. <laughs> Why don't you look at it this way? Now, supposing you hadn't broken in on that telephone call. Suppose you got your husband the way you always do. Now, you wouldn't be so upset, would you? Well, I... 
No, I suppose not. Only it sounded so inhuman, so... All murders, a lot of murders are uh, plotted in this city every day, ma'am, and we manage to prevent almost all of them. But, but a clue of this kind is so vague, ma'am, well, uh, it ain't much more use to us than no clue at all. Surely you can understand... Unless, of course, you have some reason for thinking this car was a phony, and that someone may be planning to uh, murder you. Me? Oh... Uh, no, no, I hardly think so. I mean, why should anybody? Well, you... I'm alone all day and night. I, I, I see nobody except my maid, Eloise. She's a big girl. She weighs 200 pounds. Uh-huh. She's too lazy to bring up my breakfast tray. Uh-huh. And the only other person is my husband, Albert. He's crazy about me. He just adores me. Yes, He well... waits on me hand and foot. He scarcely left my side since I took sick 12 years ago. Uh-huh. Well, then... Then there's nothing for you to worry about, is there, huh? Now, if you'll just leave the rest to us, we'll take care of it. Uh, but what will you do? It's so late, it's nearly 11 now. We'll take care of it. Will, will you broadcast it all over the city and send out squads and, and warn your radio cars to watch out, especially in suspicious neighborhoods like mine? Lady, we, lady, I said I, we would take care of it. Now, really? just now, I've got a couple of other matters here on my desk that require immediate attention. Good night, ma'am, and thank you. Oh, you, you idiot. Oh, now, why did I hang up the phone like that? Now he'll think I am a fool. Oh, why doesn't Elbert come home? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't Your call, please. Operator. Operator, for heaven's sake, will you ring that Murray Hill 40098 number again? I can't think what's keeping him so long. I will try it for you. Well, try, try. I don't see why he doesn't answer. Oh. I'm sorry. Murray Hill 40098 is busy. I will call I can you. hear it. You don't have to tell me. I know it's busy. <laughs> Oh, if I could only get out of this bed for a little while. If I could get a breath of fresh air and just lean out the window and see the street. Hello, Albert. Hello. 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 Oh, what's the matter with this phone? Hello. 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 Oh, for heaven's sake, who is this? Hello. Operator, I don't know what's the matter with this telephone tonight, but it's positively driving me crazy. I've never seen such inefficient, miserable service. Now, look. Look, I'm an invalid, and I'm very nervous, and I'm not supposed to be annoyed. But if this keeps on much longer... What seems to be the trouble, please? Well, everything's wrong. I haven't had one bit of satisfaction out of one call I've made this evening. The whole world could be murdered for all you people care, and now my phone keeps ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing every five seconds or so, and when I pick it up, there's no one there. I am sorry. If you will hang up, I will test it for you. I don't want you to test it for me. I want you to put that call through whatever it is at once. I'm afraid I cannot do that. You can't? And why? Why, may I ask? The dial system is automatic. If someone is trying to dial your number, there's no way to check whether the call is coming through the system or not. 
unless the person who is trying to reach you complains to his particular operator. Oh, well, I'm all this stupid. And meanwhile, I've got to sit here in my bed suffering every time that phone rings, imagining everything. I will try to check the trouble for check you. Check it, check it. That's all anybody can do. Oh, what's the use of talking to you? You are so stupid. Oh, it's her. I'm only impudent. And... How dare she speak to me like that? How dare she speak to me like that? Oh, why did they take so long? Your call, please. Young woman, I don't know your name. But there are ways of finding you out, and I'm going to report you to your superiors for the most unpardonable rudeness and insolence that's ever been my privilege. Give me the business office at once. You may dial that number direct. Dial it direct. I'll do no such thing. I don't even know the number. The number is in the directory, or you may secure it by dialing information. Listen here, you... Oh, what's the you? Oh, dear... Oh, for heaven's sake, I'm going out of my mind. Hello? Hello, stop ringing me. Do you hear? Answer me. Who is this? You realize you're driving me crazy? Who's calling me? What are you doing it for? Now, stop it, stop it, stop it, I say. Hello? Hello? If you don't stop ringing me, I'm going to call the police. You hear? The police! something else, so I'm home, and you've heard my voice answer them just now, that's why they've been ringing me, why no one has answered me. Oh, oh where is she? Where is she? Why doesn't she answer? Oh. Your call, please. Where were you just now? Why didn't you answer at once? Give me the police department. Impossible. The police department can't be busy. There must be other lines available. The line is busy. I will try to get them for you later. No, no, I've got to speak to them now. It may be too late. I've got to talk to someone. What number do you wish to speak to, please? I don't know, but there must be someone to protect people inside the police department. A, a, a detective agency. You will I, find agencies listed in the classified directory. But I don't have a classified. I mean, I, I, I'm too nervous to look it up, and I don't know how to use the directory. I will but... connect you with information. Perhaps oh. they will be able to help you. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, you're being Spiteful, aren't you? You don't care, do you, what happens to me? I could die and you wouldn't care. <laughs> oh, stop it! Stop it! I can't stand anymore! Hello, what do you want? Stop ringing, will you? Stop! Hello? Is this Plaza <gasps> 32099? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm sorry. This is... This is Plaza 32099. This is Western Union. I have a telegram here for Mrs. Albert Stevenson. Is there anyone there to receive the message? Hello? I'm Mrs. Stevenson. The telegram is as follows. 
Mrs. Albert Stevenson, 53 North Sutton Place, New York, New York. Darling, terribly sorry. Tried to get you for last hour, but lying busy. Leaving for Boston, 11 p.m. tonight on urgent business. Back tomorrow afternoon. Keep happy. Love, signed, Albert. Oh, no. Do you wish us to deliver a copy of the message? No. No, thank you. Thank you, madam. Good night. Good night. Ah, no. No, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Not when he knows I'll be on the Lord. It's some trick. It's some trick. Some finished. Some finished. Your call, please. Operator, try that Murray Hill 4098 number for me just once more, please. You may dial that number direct. Oh. number of Henchley Hospital. Henchley Hospital? Yes. Do you have the street address? No, no, it's somewhere in the 70s. It's a very small, private and exclusive hospital where I had my appendix out two years ago. Henchley, H-E-N-C. One moment, please. Oh, please hurry, and please, what is the time? You may find out the time by dialing Meridian oh. 71212. Oh, I've no time to be dialing. The number of Henchley Hospital is Butterfield registry. Who was it you wished to speak to, please? I want the nurse's registry at once. I want a trained nurse. I want to hire her immediately for the night. I see. And what is the nature of the case, madam? Nerves. I'm very nervous. I, I need soothing and companionship. You see, my husband is away, and Have I'm been all... recommended to us by any doctor in particular, madam? No, but I really don't see why all this catechizing is necessary. I want a trained nurse. I was a patient in your hospital two years ago, and after all, I do expect to pay this person for attending me. We quite understand that, madam. But we're not completely back on a peacetime basis, you know. I know that. Registered nurses are very scarce just now. But... And our superintendent has asked us to send people out 
Only on cases where the physician in charge feels it is absolutely necessary. Well, it is absolutely necessary. I'm a sick woman. I'm, I'm very upset, very. I, I, I'm alone in this house, and I'm an invalid. And tonight I overheard a telephone conversation that upset me dreadfully. A woman's going to be killed when a train comes. In fact, if someone doesn't come at once, I'm afraid I'll go out of my mind. I see. Well... I'll speak to Miss Phillips as soon as she comes in. Miss Phillips? And what is your name, madam? Miss Phillips, when do you expect her in? I really couldn't say. She went out to supper at 11 o'clock. Ele- 11 o'clock? But it's not 11 yet. Oh, oh, my clock has stopped. I thought it was running now. What time is it? <laughs> Just 15 minutes past 11. Uh, what was that? What was what, madam? I clicked just now in my own telephone. As though someone has lifted the receiver off the hook off the extension telephone downstairs. I didn't hear it, madam. Now about But I did. There's someone in this house. Someone downstairs in the kitchen that are listening to me now. They're listening. I won't pick it up. I won't let them hear me. I'll be quiet. And they'll think... Oh, but if I don't call someone now while they're still down here, there'll be no time. Operator, I'm in desperate trouble. I, I am sorry, I cannot hear you. Please speak louder. I don't dare. I there's there's someone listening. Can you hear me now? I am sorry, but you've got to hear me. Oh, please, please, you've got to help me. There's someone in this house, someone who's going to murder me, and you've got to get in touch with it. Just hear it. There it is. He's put it down. He's put down the extension phone. He's coming up. He's coming up the stairs. Give me the police department. The police department. One moment, please. I will connect you. Oh, I can hear him. Please hurry. Please hurry. Oh, please hurry. What are you going to do? Oh, look at you. I have another disease. I have another disease. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sergeant Martin speaking. Police department? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I must have got the wrong number. Don't worry. Everything's okay. And so closes Sorry Wrong Number, in which Roma Wines have brought you Miss Agnes Moorhead, a star of tonight's study in Suspense. Suspense is produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Before Miss Moorhead returns to the microphone, this is Truman Bradley with a word for Roma Wines, the sponsor of Suspense.
This is the time of year when the air is clear and the hills look as if they had been burnished in gold. At dusk, the color glory of Indian summer paints the countryside. A perfect setting for a simple supper with friends. For a meal brightened by distinguished Roma California Burgundy. In the words of famed hostess Elsa Maxwell, Next time you have friends for dinner, add to their enjoyment of the food and give the occasion a gracious, festive touch by serving delightful Roma Burgundy. My guests especially enjoy the fruity, robust, tart piquancy of Roma Burgundy. A simple way to lend enchantment to dining. Yes, like all Roma wines, you'll enjoy Roma Burgundy. Delightful, delicious, distinguished wine at its best. In uniform, fine quality. And here's a hint on how to make better cocktails. Make them with zestful, full-flavored Roma vermouth. The vermouth of almost a hundred rare herbs. Made and bottled in the heart of California's famous vineyards. Yet surprisingly low-priced. Try Roma vermouth soon, won't you? This is Agnes Moorhead. It goes without saying that it has been a major thrill to appear again on Suspense with Sorry Wrong Number. If you enjoyed it, I'm sure you won't want to miss next Thursday's Suspense show, which Mr. Spear tells me will present the premiere of Lucille Fletcher's very newest suspense play. It is called The Furnished Floor, and in it you will hear Mildred Natwick and Don DeFore. Agnes Moorhead appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, and is one of the stars in their forthcoming production, Our Vines Have Tender Grapes. Next Thursday, you will hear Mildred Natwick and Don DeFore as stars of Suspense, radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Presented by Roma Wines, R-O-M-A, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. KMX Columbia. And now, the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden. Down to the depths with a veil of time is lifted, and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of the Shadow People. Elaine, have you been... I mean, have you seen anything else since you spoke to me last? No, I haven't. Ever since Mother died, nothing's happened. Well, I only hope... <laughs> came from upstairs. Come on. <laughs> I don't know what to think. I only hope that... David, David, if anything's happened to him... We'll see in a moment. There's no light in this room. You wait here, Elaine. Where's the light? Over to your left. David. What's wrong? Why didn't you leave the light on? Your father's dead, Elaine. In just a moment, the Hall of Fantasy will present The Shadow People. And now for our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne entitled The Shadow People. 
Somewhere along the line of your life, you've met them. You have come in contact with the shadow people. When did we first discuss it? Oh, yes, Brian and Elaine and I. It was in my apartment. There was only one light on in the entire place. Oh. What's wrong? Oh. Elaine, what's the matter? Oh, it's silly, I know, but I've, I, th- I thought I saw something in that doorway over there. Where? Over there, right over there. Where are you going, David? Over to that archway, just to let you know that nothing's here. Huh. You see, Elaine, nothing's wrong, nothing at all. Are you satisfied that there's no one else here but us? Yes, I... Oh, I'm sorry. I just thought that I... Leave the overhead lights on. I'm sorry. I thought that... Put them back on, David, please. All right, Elaine. Look, what's bothering you, sis? I don't know. It's just that... I don't know. Tell us about it, Elaine. Tell us what's bothering you. You promise that you... You won't laugh at me? Of course not. Brian? Elaine, I'm your brother. If something's troubling you, I'd like to know about it. All right, then. The reason I was so upset was the fact that I saw someone or something standing in that archway. But Elaine, David showed you that there was no one else in here. When the lights were put on, you saw for yourself that we were alone. I'm not talking about something you you can see in the light, Brian. I'm not talking about a human being. And what's it all about, Elaine? In the darkness, I, I saw something that can't be seen in a lighted area. And I've seen it several times before. You're sure you're not imagining this, Elaine? Oh, I don't have that good an imagination, Brian. How long have you... Have you seen this thing, Elaine? Well, it... It started about six weeks ago. You were in Detroit on business, Brian. Mom and Dad were on vacation. I was in the house by myself. In the library. There was only one light on. I sat in the chair beneath it, reading. Several times I thought that something was watching me. I felt there was someone in the room with me, standing right in back of me. Every so often, I'd glance back over my shoulder, but there seemed to be nothing there. And then, then I thought I heard someone whispering. I wasn't sure, but when I heard it again, I got up and I, I, I looked all over the house. Oh, I'm not easily frightened, you know that, but, but out in the hallway... It was almost entirely black. Luckily, I was near a light switch. I looked back over my shoulder, and I saw this huge, hulking shape for the first time. And I heard a voice. Rather, the whisper of a voice. I couldn't distinguish the words, but that dark shape seemed to be moving towards me. My hand was on the light switch, and I turned it on. In a minute, the light flooded the hallway. The shape was gone. There was nothing there. I was alone again. As long as there's light, I know it can't hurt me. I know it can't reach me. You might have imagined it, you know. Of course, that's possible, but I'm sure I didn't. It was so real. So real, that shape in the darkness. It was the very essence of evil itself. There was an old man I knew of, a Dr. Hesedius. I'd heard that he knew quite a good deal about the supposed supernatural manifestations which had taken place in the world. I went to him, 
to see if he knew anything that might explain the events of the story Elaine had told us. Yes, my good sir. What do you wish? I have an appointment with Dr. Hesedius. Oh, yes, yes. He mentioned something about it. You are Mr. Drake? Yes. If you'll come inside. Thank you. Dr. Hesedius is in the study. Please come with me. Doctor? A visitor for you? Oh, yes. Bring him in. May go now? Yes, Doctor. Mr. Drake? Yes. Sit down, please, in that chair over there. Thank you, sir. Now, what is the nature of your visit to me? Well, I understand, Dr. Vesalius, that you have a great knowledge of the supernatural manifestations which have occurred on the earth. Great knowledge, Mr. Drake? No, hardly that. I have only scratched the surface in my years of study. Perhaps I can help you, then again, perhaps I cannot. Well, may I tell you the story? By all means, my good sir. All right. Now, this didn't happen to me, Doctor, but to my fiancée. It seems that about six weeks ago, when she was alone... But when the light was on, the dark form disappeared. And that's the story, sir. As much of it as I can remember. Mm-hmm. I see. It's a strange tale you tell. I'm fully aware of that, Dr. Vesalius. You say she seemed to hear whispered voices? Yes, that's what she says. I see. A moment, please. I have a book in my file. Oh, yes. Here it is. This is the one. Yes. Perhaps I may be able to help you after all. Let me see. This is a very ancient book, Mr. Drake. I seem to remember... Yes. Here is an account of a happening such as you relate. And we shall live on the earth and they shall not see us. Yes, it has been foretold by the ruler of the darkness. They who live by day, retire to sleep by night, shall never know that we walk with them, that we watch them, that we wait for our chance. Only in the night will they see us, for in the daylight we are not seen. Only in the night... When the darkness grows together and the forms of the shadow people are shaped from the blackness, they will know us. They will know that we are their companions, for we are the shadow people. I knew I had read something similar to the story you have told me, Mr. Drake. Dr. Asilius, what can we do? Well, give me a little time. Let me see if I can find any more references to these uh, people of the darkness. One more thing, Mr. Drake. Yes. Be sure that your fiancé is never left alone at night. Be sure that there is some living thing, animal or human, which accompanies her every second of the night. For she is in danger, Mr. Drake. A terrible danger. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne, entitled... The Shadow People. That night, the night of the day I had seen Celius, Elaine's mother died. She died in her sleep. When she failed to appear for breakfast, Elaine's father went upstairs to see what was wrong. 
When he entered her room, he discovered that she was dead. The family doctor couldn't explain it, for Elaine's mother had been in perfect health. A few weeks later, I was out of the house spending a weekend with him. I glanced at the clock on the mantel, and it showed eleven. I can't understand why Brian hasn't returned from town. Well, he said he had some extra work to catch up on. He told me this morning that he might be late. Well, eleven o'clock, I'm going upstairs. Glad you came out, David. Good seeing you again. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Well, don't stay up too late. See you both in the morning. Good night, Dad. Good night, Mr. Davis. He isn't the same, David. Ever since Mother died, he hasn't been the same. I didn't realize that until tonight. He's changed. I only hope that he'll start living again. Ever since she died, it, it seems that a part of him died with her. Elaine, have you been... I mean, have you seen anything else since you spoke to me last? No, I haven't. Ever since... Mother died. Nothing's happened. Well, I only hope. Came from upstairs. Come on. You don't. Think I don't know what to think. I only hope. That... David, if anything's happened to him, we'll see in a moment. There's no light in his room. You were here, Elaine. Where's the light? Over to your left. David, what's wrong? Why didn't you leave the light on? Your father's dead, Elaine. <laughs> I had walked into the darkened bedroom. On the bed was Elaine's father. It didn't take a second look for me to know that he was dead. I switched off the light and walked back into the hallway to tell Elaine what happened. And then from the room there had come an eerie, quiet laughter... In the darkness of that room was some unknown evil power. The voice itself was unearthly. There was no substance to it. It sounded as if... as if it came from the darkness itself. No. No, I don't believe you. It's the truth, Elaine. There's nothing more I can do. We'll have to notify the police. Tell me it's not the truth, David. Tell me it's not true. I'm sorry, Elaine. I wish I could. Your father's dead. After the burial, Dr. Heselius got in touch with me. He said that he wanted to meet both Elaine and Brian, that he wanted to talk to the three of us. Accordingly, a few nights later, he came out to their house. Miss Davis, will you tell me just when you saw the first manifestation? The night Brian was in Detroit. Now, Miss Davis, you have even seen this apparition in the company of other people, is that correct? Yes. The night at David's apartment. All right. Now I'll tell you what I think. You are in deadly danger, Miss Davis. These beings want to claim you. So far, they have had no success. Only in the darkness do they have power. Little by little, step by step, they have been removing the obstacles in their way to reaching you. First your mother, and then your father, Miss Davis. Both died in the same fashion. In the darkness, death struck at them. Now tell me, do you feel their presence here in this room as I talk to you? Yes. Turn out the lights, Brian. Stand by the switch, if you please, Brian. If anything happens, turn the lights back on. All right. Dr. Vesilius, I don't... Do you want me to continue working with you? Yes, sir. All right, then. Brian, turn off the lights. Yes, 
The room now is in darkness, Miss Davis. Do you feel or see anything? No, I... Yes. Yes, I do. Do you see anything? Yes. Be quiet, you fool. I know what I'm doing. In front of me. The darkness gathering together into a huge... Not only do you see us, Miss Davis, but everyone else in the room also will see the vague shapes forming themselves in the blackness. We do not want you, Dr. Cecilius. The girl we want. We advise you to drop this case. You will only bring down the wrath of the shadow people upon your head. The girl... We want the girl to not stop us. Let us take her now. Turn on the light. They're gone. Miss Davis, are you all right? Yes. Yes, I am. Just as she said. The darkness. I, I saw it form into something, too. So did I. What are we going to do, Dr. Asilius? At the present moment, I don't know. But it's much I do know. You must leave this house immediately. You must try to get out of their reach. I don't know if that is possible. I hope it is. I shall have to return to my home. I must learn if there is some manner by which we can defeat these creatures. For the moment, leave this house. Dispose of it in any manner you may see fit, but leave this house. Back now to our story. An original tale of fantasy by Richard Thorne, entitled The Shadow People. spent the night in my apartment, the three of us. The following day, Brian and Elaine made arrangements to dispose of the house. In the afternoon, Dr. Hesselius called me and asked that I come to see him. David, I'm glad you're here. Anything new, Doctor? Yes and no. You realize, of course, that this spiritual manifestation is not new, that it has gone on for centuries. No, I wasn't aware of that. It's true, David. De Maupassant wrote uh, what was supposedly a fiction story about the manifestation, David. He called it... uh, Orla. However, according to the information here on my desk, it was taken from an actual case history. Of course, he embroidered the story, added a few touches to something he didn't realize actually existed. But have you found anything with which we can fight them? Everything depends upon an answer I received from a colleague of mine in Paris, Dr. Henri Renault. I dispatched a telegram to him last night. Why hasn't he answered by now? There are certain things that must be done. It will take a few days, I'm afraid. We have to wait, David. There's nothing else we can do. In the next few days, the house was sold, and Brian and Elaine moved into a newer, more modern home a few miles from my apartment. Cecilia said it might take a few days for them to build up their power. I spent the night at the new house. The lights were left on and I watched for any unusual occurrence. In the daytime, I'd return to my apartment and get some sleep. About four days after Elaine and Brian moved into the new house, I was at home when Hesedius phoned me. Hello? David? Yes, Dr. Hesedius? I hate to tell you this, David. What's the matter? What's wrong? They were a step ahead of me, David. I just received word that Renault died, or 
was killed at the very moment I sent the telegram to him. Step by step, they had outwitted us. For they had anticipated every move we'd make. Even Dr. Hesselius was at a loss as to what to do. He agreed to meet me at the Davis house. What did you want to see us about, Dr. Hesselius? Did you find out anything more? I'm sorry to say that I haven't. At the moment, I'm at a complete loss. I don't know what to do. But what did you want to see us about this evening? Merely to check, to see if anything else has happened. Miss Davis, have you seen or heard anything? Not in the house. Only in my dreams. Your dreams? Yes. When I go to sleep at night, in my dreams, in the darkness, I see them. And it's grown worse, much worse. I was hoping that it would not have progressed so far. There has been no disturbance in this house, but now they disturb your sleep, Miss Davis. Now, you must stay awake for as long as you can. I want the three of you to move into my house. Perhaps that will give you more protection. That night, we moved over to Vesuvius' house. Perhaps Elaine would have more protection there. From there, we might be able to devise some plan of action, some way to beat those beings. For a few days, things were quiet. The shadow people seemed to have withdrawn. For a while, I thought that we might have succeeded in thwarting their purpose. Elaine no longer complained of troubled sleep. But that condition lasted for a few days only. About ten days later... They made themselves known and felt again. That night, we were in the study. When suddenly, Hesselius whirled around and... Elaine, what are you looking at? Outside the house. Right where the light leaves off, I see them. She's right, Dr. Hesselius. I can see them, too. What should we do, Doctor? Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? There's nothing we can do. We can't just... We can't do anything, Brian. Don't you understand that they have us at their mercy? Greatest man in my field was Henri Renault. If he could do nothing against them... What do you think we can do? He's right, Brian. There's nothing we can do. As long as the house remains lighted, just so long will they remain outside. If the lights were... (laughs) That sounds... My father was killed. The same sound we heard, the same sound. The lights! What's happened to the lights, all right? Be quiet, please. I thought of this emergency... A candle. That's right, Miss Davis. As long as this burns, this one candle will be safe. For they cannot advance into the light. They are limited by the darkness. As long as the candle burns, they will have to remain outside of this room. (laughs) Around you, in every room of the house, in the darkness outside, we are around you. This time you shall not escape. This time we will blame you. Take it easy, Brian. I can't stand it. I'm getting out of here. Brian, come back. Don't be a fool. I'm going after him. Stay here. We just can't let him go. He won't have a chance. I doubt it. Miss Davis, I'm afraid that your brother is dead. The wind, Doctor. Listen to the wind. I know. Yes, Doctor. Listen to the wind. You must realize by now that the three of you haven't a chance. You must know in your mind 
means that we can destroy you at any moment we desire. But, Dr. Hesilius, you may still save your own life. Let the others go. Give them to us. No. No, you will have to take all of us. Shall we destroy your light? Shall we move in on you now? <laughs> as you will. Do as you will. Sorry, David. The candle is out. In the darkness. We warned you, Hesilius. You and the others are dead now. And we shall live on the earth. And man in the day shall not see us. They will know that we wait for our chance. That we walk with them. Only in the night, when the darkness grows together, and the forms of the shadow people are shaped from the blackness, will they see us. Then they will know that we are their companions. Look. Characters and events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Eversharp Schick Injector Razor, made by Eversharp, manufacturers of Eversharp Schick Injector Razors and Blades, and famous Eversharp Precision Writing Instruments. Hideous things come out of the darkness to prowl the tortured earth. Evil hands stretch forth to seize. Evil eyes are watching. Unholy voices whisper and quarrel in the fearful silence. Death stalks. Loathsome, horrible death. Dare you put out your lights and listen to Boris Karloff in the story of horror in the deepening darkness? Dare you listen to... Lights out! I'm glad you brought up the question of ethics, Ed. Sometimes I think science is too ethical. Stands in the way of research. Mm, I don't know, David. Take your work, for example. It's wonderful. 
but you have to be very cautious. I think working with monkeys is about as far as you should go right now. Oh, but, Ed, David is past that stage. Why not show Ed the one you worked on today, darling? If you'd like to see it, Ed, it's right in the lab. Yes, I would. I saw it last night after you injected the poison. Uh, I'll get it, David. Thank you, dear. It's in the second cage. Mm, Ruth's a wonderful girl, David. Must be a big help to you in your work. Don't know what I'd do without her. But if she ever gets too interested in pure science, <laughs> I'm going I, I I to lock her out of the lab and just make her go back to being a wife. <laughs> How do you find time for a wife? Now, look here. All you practicing surgeons think the research man is a machine. Not me, Ed. Ruth means more to me than all the discoveries I might make. Her happiness is all I live and work for. Well, I can't say that I blame him. She's a very charming person. Here he is. Same one you saw last night, Ed. Stone dead. And there he is, just as healthy and alive as any other monkey. Why, it's amazing, David. Naturally, I've followed all the experiments along this line, but you seem to have progressed much farther. David can't go any farther with animals. He's ready for the next step. And he can do it. Well, I'm all for research, David. But you have a moral obligation in this sort of thing. How do you know it'll work with human beings? Oh, you're a surgeon yourself, Ed. You know that human beings are animals just like all the subjects I've used. I know it'll work. Well, knowing it won't get you far with society. You'll have to submit proof. I know that. And I've tried every way I can think of to get a human being to demonstrate on. He's tried insane asylums, penitentiaries, everywhere. No one will listen to me. Well, in a way, you can't blame them. Even to me, with my training, the idea seems, well... Blasphemous. My dear Ed, you can't stop scientific progress because of a so-called moral concept. Besides, what could be less blasphemous than a triumph over death? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I can't see it that way. I wouldn't want to try it on me. When I'm dead, I want to stay dead. Oh, that's foolish, Ed. Well, if I die first, I want David to use me for a subject. Ruth, <laughs> don't look so startled, Ed. She's always been my strongest supporter, but I'm not going to use her as a subject. I like her too well as a wife. <laughs> Still, it gives me the shivers to hear you talk that way, Ruth. Why? I've seen David's work grow to where the technique is perfect. Before long, his experiments will be recognized by the whole medical world. And if I can help him achieve that goal, I'm willing to do anything. Living or dead. I mean it. <laughs> said she wanted to do it, Ed, living or dead. David, you're surely not going to hold her to that. Not now. Of course I am. She meant it. But I called you over here tonight, Ed, because I need help. Don't tell me that. But I want you to help me bring Ruth's... to bring her here. That's exactly what I mean. David, will you help me? Or must I bribe some stranger? David, why don't you give this thing up? It's, it's inhuman. Ed, if I succeed, I'll have Ruth back. Don't you see how much it means? Well, yes, if you're successful. Oh, I've no doubt about that. Look, I've got my laboratory record. 714 times I performed the experiment on guinea pigs, rabbits, monkeys. 714 times it's been successful. Don't you see? But, David, 
This is no laboratory experiment. Ruth was your wife. She is my wife. The only woman I ever loved. That's why I want to bring her back here and start her breathing and living again. There's an ugly name for what you're asking me to do, David. I know. Grave robbery. But there's a better name for it, Ed. Death robbery. We'll rob old man death. Kick the door shut. Uh, on the operating table. I must say you are completely equipped. It's surgery, just as well as a lab. Everything we need is here. Yeah. Well, it's done. Not yet. You mean you want me to stay? Ed, listen. Ever since Ruth... Well, I guess I've leaned on you for everything. I won't ask you to stay, but I do need you. Just a little longer. All right, David. I'll stay. Ruth will be the first to thank you when we succeed. David, I'll always doubt this until I see Ruth living, breathing, smiling again. It won't be long. Just a matter of 15 or 20 minutes. If nothing happens. What will you do if your operation doesn't work? Then you'll have just one more job to do as my friend. And that? be to bury both of us. Oh, now, look, David. If Ruth isn't alive again within a few minutes, I'll have lost her forever. And I'll have proved that my whole life's work is useless. I'll have reason enough to use any of a dozen tricks that any good surgeon knows. End the whole business. Oh, but don't look so horrified, Ed. We won't fail. Let's begin. I should remind you once more, David, that you're usurping powers that belong to God Almighty. I like to think... The providence has wisely held back the knowledge of things like this until we knew how to use them. And I know how. Hand me that large beaker. All right. I'm not going to back out on you, David. What shall I do? Do. You'll work as you haven't worked in surgery before. Thank heavens I've got your skill on my side. Now then, first strap the spigot manometer on her arm. I just happen to think of something. Keep moving. This is all a matter of timing. But, David... Here are your instruments. I want the incision right here where I'm shaving the hair. Make a small incision just at the fontanelle while I prepare the solution. David, have you considered... Please work fast. But Dave, what? She was embalmed, you know. Of course I know that. I have something to replace the blood and, and counteract the fluid. It's ghastly. Finish the cut. I know what I'm doing. Well, that's all for the incision, but after all... It'll work nice. Now cut away the duramata. Entirely? Leave the brain exposed? Yes, yes, I'll fix that. I've done it 700-odd times. Well, this is no guinea pig or monkey. Well, I hardly need reminding. Sorry. What's that? A compound I've synthesized myself. What is it? I call it digamma paradiamine. Oh, I know that isn't chemically correct. But it's as close as I can get to it. I knew that something like it must exist. It took three years to track it down. It took me that long to make the first drop of it. Well, you know what you're doing, all right? Yes, I do. Now then, if you're finished, take the leads from that storage battery there and attach the positive to the silver plate on the shelf. Put that at her feet. I feel as if I were doing something unholy. Place the tip of the negative in the incision you made in the skull. Be sure the tip of the wire actually... 
actually penetrates the pyre martyr. David, what if you bring her back? I will bring her back. But what if you bring her back and find she comes back without her soul? What? Her soul? Yes. You're a surgeon, and you believe in a soul? Well, I hesitate to say there is no such thing. You've seen a good many deaths, haven't you? Have you ever seen any evidence that the soul escapes at death? Perhaps I couldn't recognize the evidence. Put it this way, then. If there is any soul, it either leaves the body or stays with it at death. Now, no reputable surgeon or physician has ever been able to report the slightest evidence of the soul's having left the body. So, the soul, if there is a soul, must stay with the body, a part of it. I'm ready now. If you've finished. Everything's set. Good. Close that switch, then, at the battery. Watch the meter and keep the current between plus and minus five of 150. There's a rheostat on the edge of the table. All right? All right. Now, I'm going to inject 10 cc's of adrenaline in the brachial artery. Adrenaline? Adrenaline and something else. There. God, she's beautiful, Ed. Yes. She was. She is. You'll see her in a few minutes, just as she was. I wonder what you'll have to tell us. Nothing. Death is only a transcendental sleep. Do you really believe that? Oh, well, what's the difference? How's the current? Let's see. What? Let's jump to 180. Good. Bring it back to 150. That's the result of the injection. On a dead body? Let's say suspended animation. There are still a few things in surgery you don't know, aren't there? I never dreamed of a reaction like that. I'll show you more. Help me swing this lamp over here. But... Let the ammeter go. It'll hold steady for a minute now. But it might jump again. No, it won't. I've been all through this before. The reactions are exactly the same as the others. And this lamp? X-rays? No, it's a modification of the cathode ray. And just another of my developments. I call these atheta rays. Why do you call them that? Well, most rays are named for the first few letters in the Greek alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, and so on. Well, that explains theta. Didn't you say a theta? Yes. But theta was called the letter of death by the ancient Greeks. Well, that's right. It was the first letter in the word thanatos. Death. Yeah, I see. A theta without death. <laughs> Maybe I was too sentimental. Maybe. At least human for once. Let's not argue. Here goes the ray. Now, quickly. The solution. Injected? No, pump it. I built this pump especially for it. There's the pump switch, Ed. Here? Yeah. Turn it on and watch the ammeter. Okay. It's jumping. How far? 155. Let it go. 160. 170. Hold it there. It'll stay there now. Listen carefully. Yes. As soon as I turn off the pump, I want spigma readings. But there won't be any blood pressure. Wait and see. Give me a reading each time I ask for it and take them carefully. Are you ready? That's fantastic. I'm ready. Okay. Reading. Systolic zero. Diastolic zero. That's all right. It will take a few seconds. Now. Forty. Oh my God. Diastolic. Hurry. 
Zero. Aortic valve is still open. I'll turn off the ray. Reading. 48. Over 42. David. Not yet. Now the stopwatch. Seven seconds after I say go, I want this systolic. Now you have it? Right. Ready. Now, go. Sixty. Go. Just what it should be. Lord, look at my hand. I don't wonder. Ruth, darling, just a few more minutes. All right, Ed. Now the ray again. We'll know the answer. Very soon. The second act of Lights Out, starring Boris Karloff, will follow in just a moment. But now, listen to the sweetest shaving song ever written. Push, pull, click, click. Changes blades that quick. Push, pull, click, click. With the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor, yes, it clicks for men everywhere. Because the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor is the world's one and only razor with the automatic blade changer. No blades to unwrap. Fingers never touch the blade. Just push-pull, click-click. And a keen new blade is automatically locked in correct shaving position instantly. It clicks because the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor makes shaving 50% faster, 100% safer, 200% smoother. Just try the Eversharp Schick Injector Razor for one week. See for yourself the difference. It's a $1.75 value. Special now, only $1.25, complete with 20 blades. For the shave of your life, the rest of your life, switch to an Eversharp Schick Injector Razor. Get yours tomorrow. Push-pull, click-click. Buy an Eversharp Schick. How long do you use the ray this time, David? Not long. Give me a reading. Sixty-eight. Over sixty-seven. Now. Seventy. Diastolic. Sixty-eight. Now. David. A hundred and eighteen. Seventy-six. Close. Now. A hundred and twenty. That's it. Eighty. The stethoscope. Quick. Listen. Still asleep. 
Yes. Almost a coma. She's all right otherwise. As far as I can tell, her respiration's normal, pulse just a tiny bit fast, and reflexes slow, but apparently all right. David, I... I feel I must apologize to you. Apologize? Why? Well, for doubting you, I suppose. <laughs> You'll learn to believe me. Very calm in the face of all this. Do you realize that you've performed a miracle? A miracle? I brought my wife back to me, as I promised her. It's... It's an unholy thing, but... But we've conquered death. Is that unholy? We have conquered death. May God forgive us. She'll only wait now. How long has he been asleep? Let me see. Eleven hours. Hasn't spoken at all? Not since that first scream, when she fell asleep. Have you given her anything? Just a few drops of brandy. Have you tried to wake her? No, but... I think I'll try now. Oh, wait a minute before you do. Why? Well, I... I hate to keep harping on this business about a soul, David. I realize this is no place for a philosophic discussion. But I can't help wondering why Ruth screamed when she first came back to life. Oh, I think there's a logical explanation. After all, it must have been a physical shock. Well, that's true. It must also be true that there was a great mental shock involved. I think that's why she screamed. And I'm wondering whether there's been a permanent effect on her mind. Known as I prefer to think of it, her soul. Oh, you're simply borrowing trouble, Ed. I've never seen any sign of permanent damage in my other experiments. Don't forget that Ruth was a human being. Well, there's only one way to find out. I'm going to wait. You're, you're not afraid? Afraid? Of what? Ruth. Ruth. Wake up, darling. Ruth, dear, it's David speaking. Wake up, dearest. Ruth. Ruth. Ah! Darling. No wonder it's scared a poor girl. Ruth, it's it's David, dear. I kept my promise and you're alive again. Oh, you're all right, honey. It's David, you're you're Ruth. Ruth. David, David, what's the matter? Ruth. God is her mind. No, David. Her soul. David, you'd better go out for a little exercise now. I'll stay here with her. I'll stay while you go out and walk around a bit. You've been there with her since 8 o'clock last night without any letter. Go on, I'll stay. Ed. I know, old boy. I'd give anything myself if we could undo what we've done, but... Ed, what can I do? Well, there may be something. Let's try an experiment when she wakes up again. What kind of an experiment? Well, let's see if we can talk to her, get her to say anything. If we can get a flicker of intelligence, maybe we can teach her, build up from a small fragment. Maybe it might work. I'm going to wake her up and try it. Well, not now. Why don't you take a walk? Relax a little and get something to eat while you're out. Eat? I can't eat. I'm going to wake her. Ruth... Ruth. David, why not let her sleep? She's waking up now. Ruth. Hello, Ruth. Are you waking up? Poor child. Poor child. There. She repeats after me. A little. Maybe it will work, Ed. Ruth. David. It works. Seems to. Ruth, say I want a glass of water. Seems to. <laughs> I want a glass of water. Water. It's too long for her. 
Ruth. Say, Ruth. Loves David. David. <laughs> Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. Ruth loves David. Maybe. But what is she thinking? I don't know. No, no. <laughs> Ruth, stop it. Stop it. Wait a minute, old man. This is too much for you, tired as you are. Go on, I'll take a little walk, and I'll work with it for a while. Stop. Your nerves won't take much of this. Oh, I guess you're right, Ed. I can't think anymore. I'll be right there. Fine, fine. I'll take good care of you and see what I can find out. Be patient. Don't worry. I will. And you get something to eat while you're out. All right, I'll try. Poor guy, this is really rough on him. Rough on him! Ruth! Kidding ourselves, there's nothing there. She's a parrot. Never mind, Ruth. Ruth, put on that scalpel. Scalpel! You'll hurt yourself. Ruth, stay away. Don't put it down. Think of David. God's sake, what happened? Ruth. Scalpel. I'll get something and fix you right up. Wait. No use. Now look. Doctor. Artery. No hope. Ed. All right, Doctor. Your diagnosis is correct. A minute or two left. Ruth's hiding. Watch out. No, no soul. She'll kill you, too. What have I done, Ed? Everything I've done is wrong. Wonderful technique, Doctor. Congratulations. What about soul? Ed. Ed. Rose. She's somewhere in the house. What if she gets out and a scalpel in her hands? There's been enough damage. Ruth! Ruth! Basement. I'd better take a gun. You'll hurt yourself. Ruth. Ruth, Ruth, come back.
Hello? Yes? Oh. Hello, Doctor. Well, I've been busy in the lab. No. No, there's nothing new. Just an experiment. No. Like so many experiments, it... It just didn't work out. Eversharp Shake has just presented Boris Karloff in the first of the new series of mystery and terror stories, Lights Out. In just a moment, we'll tell you about next week's story. But first, no matter what kind of razor you use now, here's a challenge. There's a better, easier, faster way to shave. Eversharp Schick Injector Razor has banished forever 90% of the nuisance that makes shaving such a chore. Ends nuisance number one, no time wasted. Eversharp Schick Injector Razor has been proved at least 50% faster. Ends nuisance number two, it's safer. Patented guard bar prevents skin irritation, even under nose. Eversharp Schick shaves clean and smooth without skin irritation. Ends nuisance number three. Nothing to take apart or put together. World's easiest razor to clean. Just rinse, shake, put away. Ends nuisance number four. No blades to unwrap. Fingers never touch the blade. Just push-pull, click-click. Because Eversharp Shicks, the world's one and only razor with the automatic blade changer that locks a keen new blade, the world's sharpest blade, in correct shaving position instantly. Yes, it's 50% faster, 100% safer, 200% smoother. So, for the world's quickest, easiest, cleanest shave, change to Eversharp Schick Injector Razor. It's a $1.75 value, but special now for only $1.25, complete with 20 blades. Buy yours tomorrow. Next week, Lights Out will bring you a story about the undead, the vampires who are doomed to wander alone through all eternity, seeking the blood of innocent ones. Be sure to listen next Wednesday night at the same time. Lights Out is produced and directed by Bill Lawrence. The script is by Paul Pierce and Willis Cooper. This is Ken Niles speaking for Eversharp, manufacturers of Eversharp Schick Injector razors and blades, and famous Eversharp Precision Writing Instruments. For birthdays, weddings, anniversaries, and business gifts, remember the best gift of all is an Eversharp CA pen. Buy yours tomorrow during the sensational Eversharp CA pen sale. Buy now and save as much as 60%. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. that yesterday? Feel a bad cold coming on? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. Escape. <laughs>
groping in the midnight dimness of a gigantic department store. And suddenly you realize that you're not alone. But a hundred eyes are glaring at you from the shadows. A hundred hands reaching for your throat. And your most urgent desire is to escape. Escape. Produced and directed by William N. Robeson. And carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to the dark labyrinth of a giant department store in the dead of night and to a fantastic world of night dwellers as John Collier imagines it in his eerie story, Evening Primrose. because of the completeness of their food department. Therefore, this afternoon, I entered the store and went immediately to the fourth floor to the rug department and hid myself in this dusty, out-of-the-way corner behind a pile of carpets. 
Once I'm settled, I'll furnish it with the best of modern pieces from the furniture department. It's small, but I'll be cozy enough. And safe. After the store closed, I made my first venture out. I tiptoed as far as the stationery counter and got this paper. The writer's primary need. Now, after making my initial entry, I'll go out and get food, wine, the pillows for my bed, perhaps a fancy dressing gown. This is perfect. I'll be able to write here. Dawn, October 14th. I'm almost too unnerved to write this. The whole thing is unbelievable. After the store was dark and completely quiet, I crept out and started for the food department. One footstep echoed hollowly in an empty department store at night, and I found myself gliding along the floor on tiptoe, moving as silently as possible. But the sound of footsteps persisted. Suddenly I realized they were not my own. The night watchman. I was in the Salon Moderne. Quickly I seized a mink coat from a hanger, draped it about my shoulders, and stood stuck still. on my lips. There was someone else here. I was looking straight into a pair of eyes. Large, flat, luminous, inhuman eyes peering at me from among the Mrs. Taylor's tubes a dozen feet away. They belonged to a creature dressed as a man, but he was as pale as a creature found under a stone. His hands hanging motionless at his sides looked more like the fins on a fish than human hands. And then he spoke. Not bad for a beginner. I... I'm sorry. I didn't know anybody else uh, lived here. Oh, yes. We live here. It's delightful. We? Yes, all of us. Don't you see? Look around you. I looked around. I saw nothing. I looked again. I saw an old man come clambering out from behind a clock. There were three elderly ingenues, incredibly emaciated, pale as lace, almost transparent, simpering before the perfume counter. A chintzy lady swam out from the curtains and drapes. They came swarming thick around me, pale, thin, wispy, moving silently, fluttering like gauze in the wind, whispering. Oh, he looks. Who is he? Of course, it's the son. What is he doing here? A detective. Send for the dark man. Yes, send for the dark man. The dark man. They were pressing around me, clawing, holding me, their pale faces contorted with venomous, inhuman hatred. I was paralyzed. All I could do was repeat over and over again, I'm not a detective. I'm not a detective. I'm not a burglar, then. A burglar? Tie him up. Hold him. Carry him to the place. Send for the dark men. Stop. Stop. Let him speak. I'm not a detective. Or a burglar. I'm a poet. Then what are you doing here? I've... I've renounced the world. I came here to live where I could... 
be alone. Away from the world. Why then? He's come over to us. He's just like us. He's come over to us. A poet. He must be Mrs. Vanderpan. Yes, Mrs. Vanderpan. She's coming now. I follow their eyes toward the balcony. There, coming down the wall like an ancient spider, clambered an old lady, wrinkled and cracked and emaciated. She must have been at least 80, a shadowy matriarch. And the thing around and bowed and scraped as she reached the floor and floated toward us. What's going on here? Where is that stupid girl? What's keeping her? Oh, uh, Mrs. Vanderpan. Well, what is it? Who's this, Mr. Roscoe? Uh, Mrs. Vanderpan. May I present Mr. Uh... Oh, uh, Snell, Mr. Snell, Mr. Charles Snell. Yes, yes, of course. Mr. Snell. He's a poet, and he's come here to live. Oh, he has, has he? That's what he says, and I believe him. Well? Yes, he avoided the night watchman quite neatly. For a beginner. Well, thank you. Hmm. Very well. We shall see. A poet should find inspiration here. Mr. Snell, Mrs. Vanderpant is our grand old lady. Oh? I am quite the oldest inhabitant here, Mr. Snell. Three mergers and a complete rebuilding. But they didn't get rid of me. Oh, really? Oh, oh, where is Zelda? Where is my broth? She's bringing it, Mrs. Vanderpan. Oh, terrible little creature. Uh, she is our foundling, Mr. Snell. Uh, she's not quite our sort. Is that so? I have been here, Mr. Snell, ever since the terrible times of the 80s. Oh, I was a young girl then. A beauty, they say. And poor papa lost his money. Oh, braces meant a lot to a young girl in those days. So when I wasn't able to have a charger come, I came here for good. That's better than a charger comes. I was quite alarmed when others began to come after the crash of 1907. But it was the dear judge. How do you do? The colonel. How do you do? Mrs. Bilby. How do you do? Mrs. Bilby writes plays. Oh. Anne comes of an old Philadelphia family. Oh, you will find us quite nice here, Mr. Smith. I'm sure I will. And, of course, all our dear young people came in 1929. Their poor papas jumped from skyscrapers. They couldn't bear to be without Charles Accounts either. Do you mean all these people live here? Oh, and many more. You shall meet them all later. Oh, here comes Zander with my block. Come, come, you stupid thing. Mrs. Vanderpant is waiting. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I'm coming as fast as I can. No, you careful. Oh, but she's young. Well, of course, she is a little younger than most of them. And she, she's different. She's beautiful. Mr. Snell. Ella is Mrs. Vanderpant's maid. That's right, old man. She's really not our sort at all. You shouldn't say such things. She can hear you. Oh, that doesn't matter. You'll understand these things better after you've been here a while. But it seems to me that you would... Mr. Snell, we have certain rules here. They are necessary for our survival. I'm sure you won't find it hard to observe them. Well, yes, I appreciate... I should advise that you... Why? If you do not, that would be most unfortunate, Mr. Snell. 
most unfortunate for you. October 15. You can imagine my feelings last night. My first thought was to escape as quickly as possible. In fact, I planned to wait till morning when the store opened, then quit my hiding place, mingle with the crowds, and leave Bracey's forever. But just at dawn, Mr. Roscoe brought me a cup of coffee, which must have been drugged, for I fell asleep. And when I awoke, I found I had slept all day, and night was closing over the store once more. Later, I've spent my second night here. I saw Ella again. Ella, the pearl of this remote, fantastic cave. She's not like the others. A trifle pale, but otherwise normal and human and beautiful. A child of perhaps 18. She's the only thing that makes this nightmare bearable. October 20th. Escape seems almost impossible. There's a very effective burglar alarm system and the doors are all carefully guarded. But that's nothing compared to the dark men. Who are the dark men? I don't know. But they threaten any transgressor with these dark men. I shall try to discover who they are. At least I'm sure I'm watched, though they've begun to trust me now. Speaking to the night watchman would be suicide. Even if he believed my fantastic story or didn't shoot me as a burglar... I'm convinced that neither Ella nor I could get out of here alive. She and the Night Watchman are the only real people here. And how the others hate the Night Watchman. Oh, the vulgar creature. You reeks of the course, sir. Oh, come now, Mrs. Bilby. He's really a personable young man. Very young for a Night Watchman. Mr. Snow, sometimes I wonder about your taste. You mustn't say so much to yourself, Mr. Snow. You must become better acquainted with our ways. Yes, old man. We've come to the play tonight. We're going to be entertained with one of Mrs. Bilby's tragic comedies. Love in Shadowland. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm sure I will. It's really a festive occasion, you know. Wanamaker's is coming over. Wanamaker's? Yes. The entire colony over at Wanamaker's is coming here en masse to attend the play. You mean there are people living in other stores? Oh, dear, yes. Didn't you know? Of course, the best people live in Bracey's and Wanamaker's. Oh, come now, Mrs. Bilby. There's some very nice people at Alton. I beg your pardon, Mrs. Bilby. Oh, hello, Ella. Good evening, Mrs. Snell. Mrs. Bilby. Well, what is it? I so love to see your play tonight. May I have your permission? Certainly not. You know better than that, you stupid creature. You know where you belong? In the basement for the garbage can. But Mrs. Bilby couldn't... Mrs. Snell. Ella, you're becoming entirely too forward of late. I advise you to watch your step. Remember the dark man. Oh, no, please, Mr. Roscoe. I'll be good. I promise I will. No, please don't send for the dark men. I'm sorry, Mrs. Bilby. Excuse me. Ella, come back. Mr. Snell, you forget yourself. Let her go. But how can you treat her like that? Why do you always frighten her? And what is all this about the dark men? Well, dark men... Oh, please, Mr. Roscoe, not now. You spoil our whole evening. And I do so want Mr. Snell to enjoy my play. Very well. Later, Mr. But I want to know about the dark man. Later, later. October 21st. At last I found an opportunity to speak to Ella alone. I hadn't dared to speak to her before. 
Here one has a sense always of pale eyes secretly watching. But last night at the play, I induced a fit of hiccups. As I anticipated, I was sternly reprimanded and told to go and secrete myself in the basement where the night watchman wouldn't hear me. This was exactly what I had planned. I went to the basement. There in the darkness, among the garbage cans and the rats, I heard sobbing. Ella! Ella! Ella, is that you? Yes. Why are you crying? What is it, Ella? They wouldn't even let me see the play. Is that all? Who is this now? I'm so unhappy. There, there. You mustn't cry. You're the only one. The only one who's kind. Ella, why are you here? Why do they treat you so differently? Because I'm not like them. I didn't choose to come here. You mean you're held prisoner? Yes. You see, I was only six. I came here on a shopping tour with my mother. I got lost and fell asleep behind a counter. It's dark when I awoke and they found me. Some of them wanted to send for the dark moon because they were afraid I would tell on them. But Mrs. Vanderpant said no. I could stay and be your maid. I've been here ever since. Since you were six? Haven't you ever tried to get away? No. I don't know anything about out there. I wouldn't know what to do. Besides, I'm afraid. If anyone tries to get out, they send for the dark moon. Ella, who are the dark men? Don't you know? Oh, it's horrible. Tell me. You know how people live in all the stores. At Gimbel's and Bloomingdale's Yes, and... yes, I know. Well, the dark men live at the Undertaker's. Good heavens. And whenever someone dies or breaks the rules, or when a burglar gets in and sees these people and might tell, they send for the dark men. Oh, horrible. They put the body in the butcher shop in the food department. And then the dark, dark men come. I saw them once. It was terrible. What do they do? They go in where the dead person is. They have wax with them and all sorts of things. And when they're gone, there's just a wax model left on the counter. Then our put, people put a frock on it or a bathing suit and mix it up with the other wax models in the windows. And nobody ever knows. Ella, you mean all these dummies around us? Oh, not all of them. But if you displease these people, same thing will happen to you. October 30th. I haven't kept up my journal. Writing has been out of the question. Once more, I'm frozen with terror. But not for myself now. For Ella. They hate her. Any time they might turn against her and send for the dark men. My mind is filled with her. I dream of her every day. I'd live to see her at night. We've managed it several times. They trust me now and let me roam about without interference. Finally tonight, I met her again and said it. Ella, I love you. Oh, Charles. I love you, Ella. Let's get married. Or whatever they do here. Then we can live together in my home in the carpet department. They wouldn't dare hurt you then. Oh, Charles. Don't look so dismayed. If you like, we'll go away from here. Maybe we can get transferred to the Bergdorf Goodman's overlooking Central Park. Don't, Charles, don't. You mustn't. But I love you. Ella, you're not in love with someone else. Yes, Charles, I am. But who? I thought you hated them all. It must be Roscoe. He's the only one that's young enough. Oh, no, Charles, not Roscoe. Especially not him. 
I do hate them all. They make me shudder. Well, who is it then? It's him. Who? The night watchman. No, impossible. I love him. He smells of the sun. Ella. Oh, it was wonderful the way it happened. Don't tell on me, Charles, that they're punishing me. Oh, no, no. I was careless, and there he was, coming around the corner in the ladies' lingerie department. I was caught. There were only some wax models in their underthings. There was nothing else to do. I slipped off my dress and stood still. He stopped and looked at me. And Charles, he spoke to me. He said, Say, honey, I wish they made him like you on 8th Avenue. Charles, wasn't that a lovely thing to say? Personally, I should have said Park Avenue. It doesn't matter what street. It was a lovely thing to say. But what can you do about him? Ella, he belongs to another world. Yes. To 8th Avenue. I want to go there. Charles, are you really my friend? Yes, of course I am. And I'll tell you, I'm going to stand there again in the lingerie department, so he'll see me. And then? Perhaps he'll speak to me again. Ella, you're only torturing yourself. No, because this time, I shall answer him. He'll take me away. Take you away? Oh, no, Ella, I couldn't bear that. You don't love him. You only think you do because you think he'll take you out of here, but you don't know that he will. And I will, Ella. I've made up my mind. No, Charles, I couldn't let you do it. Even if I loved you, you couldn't do it, Charles. Why not? Because you really belong here. You're... You've become one of them now. Ella, you mustn't say that. It's true. And, Charles, i got to go. There's someone watching us. I feel like... No, wait, Ella. Goodbye, Charles. No, Ella. Come back. Ella. Roscoe. Yes. Love can be very upsetting, can't it? You heard? Yes. Just the last moment or so. Very touching. <laughs> Yet it's understandable. I've been attracted to Ella myself. So she loves another, hmm? Too bad, old boy. Who could it be? Could it be that I am the cause of your heartbreak? You flatter yourself too much, Rascal. Well, then whom? The old judge? Well, certainly not. The colonel? Hardly. None of those. Oh, not one of the customers. She loves the night watchman. Can you imagine that? She loves the... Oh? Roscoe, I shouldn't have said that. It's not true. At least I don't think it's true. You wouldn't... Roscoe, you said you loved her too. You wouldn't do anything. Tell anybody. This is a secret between us. Between friends, isn't it? Of course, old man. As secret as the grave. She's young. Perhaps she'll leave and she'll forget him in time. Who knows? Perhaps she'll learn to love you or me. Of course. In time. And we'll figure a way to keep her safe here. Absolutely safe. Now, don't you worry about it. It's almost dawn. Time for bed. Good morning, Mr. Snell. because this evening the atmosphere has changed. People flicker to and fro, smiling nervously, horribly with a sort of frightened, sadistic exaltation. An informal dance in the record department has been called off. I can't find Ella. I'm going out again now to look for her. Roscoe, what have you done with her? Shh, 
quiet, old boy. The night watchman. I don't care. What have you done? Whatever I did was for your own good as well as for the good of us all. Wait a minute. What is that? What are those people carrying? That's Ella. She's tied up. They're carrying... Ella! Ella! Stop it! Charles, stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! You'll arouse the night watchman. No, they're... They're taking her in... Into the butcher shop. entry hurriedly. They are in there in the butcher shop with Ella, the dark man. There's only one thing to do. I'm going to find the night watchman and tell him. He and I will save her if we can. And if we are overpowered, well, I will leave this pad on the stationary counter. Tomorrow, if I live, I will recover it. If I do not, whoever finds it and reads it, look in the store windows. Look for three new wax dummies. Two men, one rather sensitive looking. And a girl. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. And her nose turns up a little. Look for us. And then find them. Smoke them out. Extermination. Avenger. Oh, Sam, isn't it horrible? Ah. Well, Louis, we've got to do something. Tell somebody something. Oh, Sam, what do we do? Do? For nothing. Go to bed. But, Sam. Well, whoever wrote this has sure got a weird sense of humor. Probably some clerk down on braces ought to be fired. You mean, you think it's just a story? Are you kidding? You don't believe this stuff, do you? Well, well I don't know. I, I, I oh, don't... forget it, baby. What a snap out of it. I shouldn't leave you alone. You get too many ideas when I go out bowling at night. But, uh, don't you think maybe we ought to just, uh, take it back and show somebody? Oh, nuts. It's not worth the bother. They'd laugh at you, baby. They think you were crazy or something. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I was silly. Forget it. Oh, come on, let's go to bed. I'm tired. Okay. Okay, Sam. Gee, you know that for a while I still was scared. (laughs) I even forgot what I was going to tell you. Sam, I found the cutest dress today. Only 1995. Yeah, baby? Yeah. It was in the window at Bracey's. It was on a Beautiful little wax model with blonde hair, blue eyes, and a turned-up nose. And there were two men standing beside. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson 
And tonight brought to you Evening Primrose by John Collier. Adapted for radio by John Dunkel. With Elliot Lewis as Charles Snell, Paul Freeze as Roscoe, and Pat Lowry as Ella. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fure. Next week... After you've had a tough day at the office, or leaning over a hot stove, when your four walls seem to be closing in on you, next week at the same time when you want to get away from it all, we again offer you escape. Columbia Broadcasting System. Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Laurie. Presented by Camel Cigarettes. Ladies and gentlemen, there are two kinds of stories. Those you can take to bed with you and they relax you and put your mind at ease. And then, then there's the other kind. Now a story tonight... It's the other kind. I still do not know whether it was the shadow of the madness to which the author himself so tragically succumbed, or whether there really was a an evil something that could not be seen or described. Oh, why don't you decide for yourself? Uh, I'm simply going to tell you the facts in a case as set forth by Guy de Maupassant in his immortal story, The Horror. <laughs> Each week at this hour, Peter Lorre brings us the excitement of the great stories of the strange and unusual, of dark and compelling masterpieces culled from the four corners of world literature. Tonight, The Horla by de Maupassant. Mystery in the Air, starring Peter Lorre, brought to you by Camel Cigarettes. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. Yes, let your T-Zone experience what it means to enjoy camels' choice superbly blended tobaccos. You know your T-Zone, that's T for taste and T for throat, is your true proving ground for any cigarette. So try a camel. Discover whether that rich, full camel flavor doesn't just hit the spot with your taste. Whether that cool camel mildness doesn't get along beautifully with your throat. See if you too don't say, 
Camels suit my T-zone to a T. It's a wonderful house, and I love it. From my windows, I can see our great river, the Seine, which flows along the side of my garden, yes. The great, wide Seine, which goes to Rouen and Le Havre, and, and is covered by boats passing to and fro. Yes, down to the left lies Rouen, and a whole city dominated by the spire of the cathedral, and and full of bells which sound through the air on fine days, even as far as my home. Oh, (laughs) what a wonderful morning. I was almost sorry when Marie, she's my housemaid, you know, when when she interrupted me. Your luncheon is ready, monsieur. Oh, (laughs) thank you, Marie, but, you know, it seems a pity to go in a house. Say, do you like it here, Marie? Oh, yes, sir. I like it very much. I love to watch the boats go by on the Seine. Well, you do, huh? So do I. See that one? That big schooner, and, and it's being pulled by... Look, what a little tug. Oh, look, it's no bigger oh, than a fly. Isn't it beautiful? Mm. So clean and white and yes, shiny. And all white, yes. And she's a three-master, you know? Brazilian, I think. Yes, I, yes, I can see the flag. It is Brazilian. Oh, she's had a long journey from South America to pass my house. You love this place very much, don't you, monsieur? <laughs> yes, Maria. I love it. I can feel those deep roots which attach a man to the soil on, on which his ancestors were born and died, and, and to the villages, yes, to, to, to the atmosphere itself. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about, do you, Marie? No, sir. No. But I do know that if you don't come into the house soon, your luncheon will be cold. All right, all right, Marie, I'll come in. some reason, I, I've had a slight feverish attack the last few days, and I feel low-spirited and ill. I, I have continually a horrible feeling of, of impending danger, an apprehension of, of some coming misfortune or, or of approaching death. Uh, I've never experienced anything like this before. If it continues, I, I think I'll have to see my doctor. Look, I've told you, your pulse is rapid and your eyes yes, are slightly yeah. dilated. 
Otherwise, you're in splendid condition. But, Doctor, then then why is it when evening comes on, a, a feeling of oppression seizes me, just, just as if night concealed something horrible? Why is that? Probably just a slight attack of indigestion. Yes, yes, indigestion. Yesterday, when I was walking in a forest of Rumar, why did it suddenly seem to me that I was being followed and, and that someone was walking at my heels close, quite close to me? He was near enough to touch me, and yet, yet when I turned around, I saw nothing. Nothing behind me but the path between the tall trees. Horribly empty. Can you explain that by indigestion, can you, huh? Well, here's a bromide. Mm. If you'll take it in several cold showers daily, I'm sure your fears will vanish. Yes, I'm and sure. And you'll be able to sleep without any further trouble. All right, Doctor. Thank you very much. Who is there? It's I, Marie. Oh, oh, just a moment, just a moment. Yes? Are you all right? What You're is it, screaming Marie? and calling out. I'm sorry, I... Wake the I servants. I must have been here having a nightmare, Marie. Look, oh, if you right? dreamed that someone was looking at you and touching you and, and taking your neck in his hands and squeezing it, squeezing with all his might in order to strangle you, don't you think you would cry out too, huh? Oh. Yes, sir, I'm sure oh, I should. you see? All right. Just tell the other servants I shall try to be more quiet. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Good night. Hey, look. Look, Marie. My, my water carafe. Your water carafe, monsieur? Yes, it, it was full. I, I know it was full when I went to bed. Yes, sir. I filled it last night. Yes, and now it's empty. I haven't touched it, and, and it's empty. Yes, sir. Somebody has drunk the, the water. So, somebody has... Has been in his room. Somebody, something drank that water. I don't know who could have, sir, unless perhaps you yourself in your sleep. Yes, yes, I myself in my sleep, of course. That's it. I, I must have done it myself, Marie. Marie, tell him to pack my things. I, I'm going to Paris. I, I'm leaving the first thing in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Paris, I, I must have lost my head during the last few weeks. And at home, my mental state bordered a madness for, for I had believed, yes, I, I had believed that, that an invisible being lived beneath my roof. <laughs> how stupid, how perfectly ridiculous it all seems now, yes. Twenty-four hours in Paris have completely restored my equilibrium and, and tonight I, I'm going to dine at the house of my cousin, Madame Sablé, and, oh, Dr. Parent is going to be there. He's the famous specialist for nervous disorders, and, and I shall ask him, and I'm sure he, he can finally put my mind at rest about this, this silly hallucination. Well, Dr. Parent, I'm, I've been wanting to ask you, have, have you ever known of a case where a person feels that he is, um, how shall I put it, and, and not entirely in, in command of his soul? It is curious that you should ask me that. Why is it curious? Because now, only now in 1889, yes. after all these years, we are on the verge of discovering one of the most important secrets of nature. What is that? Ever since man has thought, he has felt himself close to a mystery which has been impenetrable to his gross and imperfect senses. Yes. Whatever are you talking about, Dr. Parent? <laughs> Apparitions, my dear Madame Sablé. Invisible spirits. Yes, invisible. Oh, you doctor. 
You're always being mysterious. Oh, not at all. For more than a century now, men seem to have had a presentiment of something new. Uh, Mesmer and some others have put us on an unexpected track, and we have arrived at really surprising results. Oh, you're just trying to frighten us. Not at all. If you think so, would you like me to try to send you to sleep, madame? It would be a novel experience. <laughs> if you can do it. <laughs> and if I can, it will answer your cousin's questions. Yes, it certainly would. And now, madame, if you would just sit in this easy chair. So, <sighs> now you must let your mind go completely blank and look fixedly into my eyes. Yes, that's right. Now you are going to sleep. To sleep. You're going to sleep. 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 You see, her eyes are becoming heavy. Her mouth is twitching. Sleep. You have nothing but. Doctor, I don't like this. It frightens me. Sleep. Sleep. Here, now she is asleep. An easy subject, I must say. Now, if you will stand directly behind her chair, I will proceed with the experiment. Now, Hmm. I hand her an ordinary pasteboard visiting card. So. Now, Madame Sable, you hold in your hand a looking glass. Yes. I'm holding a looking glass. What do you see in it? I see my cousin standing behind my chair. What is he doing? He is twisting his ear. But, Doctor, she cannot see me behind her by, by looking at a piece of cardboard. No, of course she can't. She sees you through her mind. Or someone's mind. This troubles you, doesn't it? Yes, it, it troubles me. But it answers your question. No. No, it does not. That's common knowledge, Doctor. It's an axiom that, that human beings can be dominated by human beings. But what if a human being is, is dominated by something? By, by something else, I mean. Something not human. What then, Doctor? August 6th. I'm back at home. Yes, now I know it's useless to struggle. Useless. Somebody possesses my soul and and dominates it. Somebody orders all my acts, all my thoughts. I'm, I'm nothing except his slave and a terrified spectator of all I do. Yes, but... But who is he, this... This invisible being that... That rules me, this... This unknowable spirit, this... This rover of a supernatural race, he... He must have a name. I... I know he has. I feel it. I, I can feel it. And, oh, someday. Someday it will come to me. Oh, if... If I only could leave my house and go away and escape and... And never, never return. But, but it's impossible. This... This being I cannot call by name, he... He will not let me. I'm helpless. What can I do? What can I do? Mr. Peter Lorre will bring us the climax of tonight's mystery in the air when camels present Act Two of the Horla. 
Experience is the best teacher. Even thousands of years ago, that was an old saying. Today, sports champions like polo star Cecil Smith are living examples of its truth. Yes, as you see Cecil Smith streak down the field, see him hit a 60-yard backhand shot for the winning goal of the game, you know it takes experience to play polo like that. As Cecil Smith himself said, Experience is the best teacher in polo, and in cigarettes, too. During the wartime cigarette shortage, I smoked any brand I could get. Experience taught me how much I really appreciate Camel. They suit me to a T. During the wartime cigarette shortage, people smoked whatever brands they could get, remember? Yes, smokers compared the different brands, whether they wanted to or not. People became experts in judging the differences in cigarette quality. And on the basis of that experience, more and more people discovered they preferred the rich, full flavor of camels, the cool mildness of camels. As a result, more people are smoking camels than ever before. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel yourself. Now back to de Maupassant's terrifying story of a man obsessed by the idea that he is dominated by an invisible being. Fear is ruining his life. The suspicion that he is no longer master of his own actions, even of his own soul, is rapidly becoming a certainty. It's only two o'clock, and the whole night is before me. Oh, how, how still it is. And the stars, how bright they are. Who inhabits those faraway regions, and and what do they know that we do not know? Will not one of them someday appear on our earth to conquer it? We are so weak, so so defenseless, and what was that? I heard the rustle of paper, yet there's no wind. Absolutely no wind. There. It's that book, yes. The the one on the table under the lamp. It's incredible. The the page has turned. The the page lifted itself up and fell down upon the others as if a finger had turned it over. My armchair appears empty, but, but no, it isn't. No, no, he is there. I know he is, sitting in my place. He's reading. I can't stand it any longer. I'll, I'll grasp him and... He ran away. He, he ran away before I could reach him. He, he ran away and, and the window closed after him. <laughs> He's afraid of me. He's afraid of me. <coughs> what do you call yourself, you you evil shade? Whatever it is, whatever it is, someday, someday I'll catch you and, and crush you. Here, come in here. What? What? We heard the noise and we wondered. Another nightmare, monsieur. No, it's not a nightmare. I, I was awake. Tell me. Tell me, Marie. Do you believe in... In invisible things? Invisible? Yes, invisible beings that, that dominate you. Well, uh, I read an article about that an in article? the paper today. What did it say? That somewhere in Brazil, I think, 
crazy. People are frightened, leaving their houses, saying they're pursued by invisible beings which feed on their life while they're asleep. Yeah? Like vampires, you know? Marie. Marie, that, that is where he came from. Oh, monsieur. Don't you remember the, the day we saw that little tug pulling that, that big Brazilian schooner up the river? Yes. Remember, she, she looked so white, all white, and, and he, he was on board. Yes, he, he came from there where his race originated, and, and he saw me, and, and he saw my white house, and, and he sprang from the ship. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I understand. Don't you? Don't you? No, monsieur, I don't. No. No, you couldn't. It, it's all right, Marie. Go to bed. Uh, there's nothing wrong. Don't worry anymore. Go back to sleep. Go. Yes, now I know. How can I help but knowing it's obvious? Yes, the... The rule of man is over, and, and he has come. He has arrived. But, but what is his name? What do you call yourself? What's that? I, no, I know he's... He's shouting it out. Yes, yes, I listened. Huh? Horla. That's it, yes. The Horla. Yes, the Horla. He, he haunts me. He... He is within me. He's becoming my soul. I, I shall kill him. There, monsieur. What? The iron shutters on the windows and door complete. All right. Know why anybody wants half-inch iron shutters in their bedroom is more mm. than I can see. Well, at least it'll keep everything I out. don't want to keep things out. I want to keep something in. Hmm? Never mind, never mind. If you're finished, you take your tools and go. My housekeeper will pay you. Yes, monsieur. Good day, monsieur. Good day. Now I'm ready. Yes, tonight he'll come. But tonight I'm ready for him. I, I'm ready for him. <laughs> He's here, yes. I, I feel it. At last, he's here, but... Oh, I don't want to alarm him. I, I'll casually close the iron shutter so... So casually as... As if I'm preparing for bed and... Now I'll start to close the iron doors. As if I'm shutting myself in for the night, but... But instead of shutting myself in, I'll... I'll shut myself out! Yes, yes, it's Donnie. He's inside. He, he cannot escape. Downstairs, downstairs, yes. As fast as I can run. Oh, good, good. The lamp is still burning. Oh, yes, fire. Fire, that'll dispose of him. Fire. Oh, See, the house is dry as tinder. Won't take long. See, the, the flames are reaching the, the ceiling already. Huh? I, I'd better get out before I burn myself up, too. Here, 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 here I can, 
I can watch from here. How slow, how slow the house is burning. Don't you suppose? No, no, there, yes. A tongue of flame licking out on the top of the window. And another, and, and another. See it burn. <laughs> my house, my, my beautiful house. And, oh, but it's, it's more beautiful. And it's now in flames because, because he's inside. <laughs> and he'll burn too, yes. And, and I'll be free. Free. Free of the horror! Fire! 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 The house is on fire! Get some water, come Yes, it's burning! It's burning! Oh! Now the whole place is in flames! Nothing! Nothing can stop it! That's Marie! The servants in the garret! They'll be killed! Here, stand back, all of you! The roof's gonna cave in! Look! Oh, the poor oh, devils, we got to get some help. Yes. Get them out of there. It's lighting up the whole countryside. A monstrous, beautiful fuel fire. And he's burning, too. My prisoner, that, that new being, that, that new master, the horror. The roof has fallen in. The roof has fallen in. Spirit would never fear premature destruction. Only we fear it. All our human terror springs from that, and... Well, then, after man... What? The horror, yes. After us, who can die any day by any accident, comes he who can die only at his own proper hour. Because he has touched the limits of his existence. No, he is not dead. Well, what can I do? What can I do? Oh, there's one thing I can do. I, I can destroy myself. Yes. 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 I must destroy myself. I'm going to destroy. Destroy myself. I know it's a story. I know it's by the Maupassant, yes. I know it's Thursday night, and we are on the air, but... But it's the horror that... Oh, oh I... I beg your pardon. I, I'm sorry I got so excited, but I... I warned you at the beginning. It's, it's a very uncomfortable story. Week, 
the makers of Camel Cigarettes and Free Camels to servicemen's hospitals from coast to coast. This week, the Camels go to Veterans Hospital, Northampton, Massachusetts, USAAF Station Hospital, Boca Raton Field, Florida, U.S. Naval Hospital, Bremerton, Washington, U.S. Marine Hospital, Galveston, Texas, and Veterans Hospital, Augusta, Georgia. According to a nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. 113,597 doctors living in every state in America were questioned by three leading independent research organizations. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor, was asked. The brand named most was Camel. Next week, Mystery in the Air, starring Mr. Peter Lorre, brings you Beyond Good and Evil by Ben Hecht, with a special musical score composed and conducted by Paul Barron. Mr. Pipe Smoker, do you know why more pipes smoke Prince Albert than any other tobacco? Well, just try a pipeful, then you'll know. Just taste the extra-rich, full flavor of P.A.'s Choice Tobacco. See if you don't prefer Prince Albert's cool mildness. Prince Albert is specially treated to ensure against tongue bite. Crimp cut to burn slow, smoke cool. Yes, Prince Albert is specially made for smoking pleasure. See if you don't enjoy your pipe more with Prince Albert. Be sure to listen to Prince Albert's Grand Ole Opry Saturday night for a half hour of folk songs and humor with Red Foley, Minnie Pearl, Rod Brassfield, and the rest of the Opry gang. And as Red's special guests, those musical Denning sisters. Remember, Prince Albert's Grand Ole Opry, Saturday night, over NBC. Listen again next week at this same time when the makers of Camel Cigarettes present Mr. Peter Laurie in Mystery in the Air. Next week's play will be Beyond Good and Evil by Ben Heck. The artists supporting Mr. Laurie tonight were Henry Morgan as the voice of mystery, Peggy Weber as Marie, Loreen Tuttle as Madame Sable, Ken Christie as the doctor, Ben Wright as Dr. Parent, Howard Culver and Jack Edwards Jr. This is Michael Roy in Hollywood wishing you a pleasant good night for Camel. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.